Digital Gonzo, episode 161, recorded Friday 13th of December 2013, Pacific Rim. We always thought alien life would come from the stars. But it came from deep beneath the Pacific. What the hell is going on? The first kaiju made land in San Francisco. The second attack hit Manila. Then the third one hit Cabo. Then we learned this was not going to stop. In order to fight monsters, we created monsters of our own. We needed a new weapon. The Jaeger program was born. Our memories connected, and man and machine become one. Today, at the edge of our hope. Welcome to the Gonzo Review of one of the most surprising and brilliant movie breakouts of 2013, a blockbuster sci-fi that's not a sequel, or a remake, or an adaptation, which puts it in a very rarefied situation, up there with the likes of Gravity and Inception. Take some time to peruse the past ten years' worth of the highest-grossing successful films, and you'll see what an unusual scenario this actually is. Here to discuss the first Guillermo del Toro movie that we've covered on this show, I have an all-star cast of hotshot rangers. From Canem Rince, Mr. Josh Garrity, co-pilot of Coyote Tango. Thank you for having me. From Do Try This at Home, Ms. Sharon Shaw, co-pilot of Wolf Queen. Good evening. From Game Burst, Mr. Neil Taylor, co-pilot of Mammoth Apostle. <laughs> Mammoth Apostle, cool, I like it. And returning after a brief appearance on the Mass Effect 3 Roundtable show, Mr. Alistair Stewart, co-pilot of Tacit Ronin. Oh, you gave me my second favourite, Jaeger. That's nice. awesome. <laughs> which was your first favourite? Cherno, all about Cherno. Anything which has a nuclear reactor for a face is A-OK with me. Well, I wanted to introduce some of the unseen, unheard of, unspoken uh, Jaeger names, and if you folks go check out the wiki, there are a whole bunch of ones that I haven't named, which, uh, you know, got awesome little stories and designs all of their own. Yeah, 
there's been a lot said about this film. Some have said it was either the dumbest smart film ever or the smartest dumb film. I'd say that sentiment sounds suspiciously like the words of someone unconcerned with scratching beyond the surface of what it turns out is a massively complex, multi-layered and universally meaningful team effort of a production. Of course, the Digital Gonzo podcast is, as always, unconcerned with veneer. So let's dive deep. So rather than talking about the actual history, let's just jump straight in. And what we're going to do is go through the events of the film chronologically, and we'll highlight an aspect of the film or a character from the film, and just sort of use them as focus points. So uh, we'll start with the opening, which was composed of found footage, but shot by another director, because Guillermo, uh, as he confessed on the awe-inspiringly excellent commentary, which I recommend you all listen to, uh, is not very good at doing found footage. So yeah, this still tells the story of kind of almost like a film that happened before Pacific Rim or a prequel. What can we learn through what we're seeing here? It does a great job of establishing how unprepared humanity was for the kaiju. Mm-hmm. Um, they had all this military force, airplanes, so forth and so on, but they just could not stop them before they killed thousands and thousands of people and and the fact that they kept coming like it would be bad enough that you know the first landing was at, at, on San Francisco I believe um, and you know, they say like tens of thousands of people died from that one attack and that would be bad enough on its own but the fact that six months later oh another one oh and then and then another one and then another one it's just you start to realize how big a threat these things are like on their own then we can deal with them a single one it's just a continuous flood of them coming over and over again that would slowly wear us down as a species mm. each one uh, of them would be a disaster movie in and of itself yeah exactly it would be like if the monster from cloverfield wasn't incompetent <laughs> the bumbling monster from cloverfield often when we 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 think about these kaiju movies there's an element of fun that goes with them and this opening robs the fun straight away it's like no this is what would happen think Mm. of all these people that die the mass destruction think about the effect that it would have on the world and it does a really good job in setting up setting that up but really cleverly and something i was actually impressed with when i was watching this film for the first time is how tragedy can turn into something that the general population just kind of ignores. You think about, um, you know, the war in Iraq and um, and terrorism and so forth. When it was initially starting, people were like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing. This is awful. But then, like, comedy shows and so forth were kind of just taking the mick out of it. And, oh, God, that silly war, war in Iraq and so forth and so on. I just like towards the end they were saying now that we got a handle on the conflict there you know there was these entertainment programs and so forth and so on just kind of taking the mick of the situation and i and it's a it's a small thing but it does reflect the way human beings deal with tragedy um throughout history exactly and i mean one of the things which i found really interesting about that as well as, as what you've already said about how it's almost humanity's coping mechanism. Horror becomes mundane, and eventually it becomes merchandise. 
is how it kind of comes out the other side and becomes entertainment. Uh, my favorite part of that, that opening montage is the shoe ad mm. where there are two shoe tie-in lines, one for the Jaegers, one for the Kaiju. Mm. And these awful, hideous, city-crushing conflicts have been rendered down to, to marketing. Yeah. And it's just, it's a really clever touch. And it's believable as well. Yeah. That's so, what gets you, they don't over-egg it, it's just, it's subtle enough that you go, yeah, I can see them doing that. It's close enough to what we see. Mm-hmm. Marketers and, and um, designers doing already, incorporating things that we are trying to comprehend into our everyday lives, that it, it seems totally logical that they would do that. Round about the time we uh, reviewed Ghostwatch, Sharon, you and I watched The Stone Tape, which is an old, um, uh, I think it was a BBC production from the 70s. And it, it was really ahead of its time if you watch it. There's a, a point that um, some scientist types are all move into an old house to, uh, what were they actually trying to do there? Um, they were trying to develop a method of recording information mm. um, onto non-traditional materials. Well, I think, in, in essence, they were trying to get uh, digital information onto crystals. Right, that was it. Amongst other things. And then they find out that there is some sort of presence there, or some sort of ghost, and there's a bit of uh, there's, there's a, a bit of a shock to begin with, but then within like a few minutes of realising there is more than we can possibly comprehend, they compre- there's this, the one guy who represents all the big business goes, right, okay, so we got a ghost, it's a problem, let's uh, let's deal with it, we'll see if we can work out a way to turn it to a profit. And it's such a natural human reaction of, if the world found out that there were there was real irrefutable proof of ghosts or God, we would take an afternoon to go, bloody hell. And then, you know, certain people it would change their lives, other people would be like, right, it's not changing my life, I'm just going to carry on and we'll, you know, we'll, some would even we'll try to work out ways to make a profit. I think quite a lot would probably work out ways to make a profit, to be honest. So God's here right now. Could, could he possibly advertise jeans? Let's face it, churches would suddenly get a whole lot richer. Oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, so moving on. But, the, yeah, the idea of, of humanity coping by, by making the fantastical mundane is absolutely a key side here. And there is a lot of hate for found footage at the moment. And uh, I, I'm always kind of bewildered by it because I, I, I like the idea of selling the story by presenting you with something that's 98% reality. I think the most important thing for me in the intro sequence was the the way it captured the scale of what was going on because mm. you've got all these little snippets from different countries. You know, this is a news piece, this is an advertising piece, this is a kids TV show. Barack you Obama really got get in there. the sense. Well, absolutely. But you really get the sense that this is a global scale. Now there's so much um that uh, Del Toro does where he shows you what the scale of something is, and we'll come to that later. But the fact that you get this uh, world-building segment that says, you know, this is not just happening in a single area. This is not just ethnocentric on the on, on the West, on America, on, you know, this side of the globe. It's not just affecting New one York set and of LA. people. Absolutely. It's everybody. It is the world. Or at least everybody who has a, a border on the Pacific, which is pretty much everyone. Yeah, uh, well, to exactly. Be honest, yeah. <laughs> um, but like uh, linking in with what you were saying, Sharon, 
I just love that this was an international movie, mm. um, not just in this intro, but throughout the movie. Sure, the the protagonist American, but like the supporting cast aren't, and it, you don't get the feeling that Gypsy Danger is just an American war machine because you have you have an an American pilot and a Japanese pilot. It does feel like a much more. This is a global struggle, and and the world as a whole is coming together to try and defeat it not just america coming in and saving the day for all of us yeah Yeah. i mean this is again this is something that we'll probably um touch on a a little bit later on but there's a scene um towards the end where uh, everybody's gathered together and it's sort of the big rousing you know crescendo and you can count the white faces in that crowd yeah which is really really good and i think there's there's a a comment that del toro made that for him to relate to an everyman the standard muscular white american hero doesn't work for him because he can't relate to that because he's a portly uh mexican yeah I know I mention this all the time, but technically this film is more like World War Z than World War Z was, in terms of the fact that World War Z is actually more about an American man going and visiting various set pieces in different countries, but no real sense of pulling together. Pacific Rim is about a last-ditch effort to save the human race. Uh, after the the bungled attempt at building a wall, and this is really significant, the idea that um, fighting didn't help, so let's build a wall and hide behind that. And it is shown immediately how useless this wall is. Because while they're building the wall, you know, a kaiju attacks Sydney and just pushes through it in minutes. The really interesting thing about that, I, I found, was... A traditionally structured film would have that towards the end of the first act. Absolutely. You know, the, yeah. the, the wall would have far more of a big deal made of it. There would be far more of a sense of, no, we're fine, everything's good. And even by having that land maybe 20 minutes into the movie, the sense of despair, the sense of horror is very visceral. Mm. Even there, it's just that kind of shit. Really? Uh, and even with the fact that you're not on site for that attack that it's all done through the news report it still has for, for a very early event it still has tremendous weight to it yeah it's about the impact not the event the imp- it's the impact of the event not the event itself it's to see because you, you, you see in this through the guys uh, when we see this in the film we're seeing it through the guys that are building the thing yeah exactly I was going to bring that up it, it's it's because of the scenario the characters watching that newscaster in that makes it especially tragic. It's yeah. like, what are we even doing here? <laughs> like, yeah. three guys this... died on the wall yesterday for what? Yeah, it, it it just makes their struggle seem utterly pointless in the face of the uh, problem they're being put in front of. And the concentration of that as well is that it makes what Raleigh is doing now. It, it kind of emphasizes the uh, the futility of of him abandoning what he was doing before and and hiding here in this place where what he's doing serves no purpose the remit while making it was to uh, have to very much be uh, guided by their influences but to not specifically set out to make references it's not a straightforward look this is evangelion oh look this is godzilla uh, they needed to um, make it its own thing 
And it's interesting you pointed out the, the difference in pacing because technically this feels like the third part of a trilogy. If you think about it, you know, with the first kaiju turning up, that would be the first film. And, um, the, the idea of like the first Jaeger being built would be how that one would end. So it's almost like, um, people have been talking about the, the possibility of a sequel. It's almost like we've already had the trilogy or it's finished out. Everything that was important was in this, this final act. This is something that, that Travis Beecham, the scriptwriter, has talked about quite a lot. And yeah. in, in the kind of run up to the release of the movie, the point where, where the press got supremely lazy and decided that it was a Transformers film because that was the last thing they saw a robot in. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, what got lost was him very clearly, more than once, saying that there's about a 20 year timeline figured out for this universe. Yeah. There are lots of other stories that can be told. I mean, the Tales from Year Zero, the graphic novel, um, does exactly that. It's set the day of, you know, within about a week, I would guess, of, of the kind of disastrous final mission Gypsy Danger goes on with Rolly and his brother. Right. And you get details about how the links developed. You get details about the first Jaeger off the line. You get a much better idea of why Stacker is so vitally important to the war effort. And it manages to set the stage for the movie at the same time as being a completely coherent, self-contained story in its own right. And I absolutely agree. I think there's an awful lot of other material that could be played with in, in that universe, and I, I really hope he gets a chance to do it in some capacity. They made a glossary and an enormous Bible of information that the whole film was based on, just to give texture to all of this stuff that was uh, was going on, just to, to give a sense that there was a, a history to it and, and how people reacted to all of this stuff, which uh, it's world-building. Precisely. So let's I would also like to say I will slap anyone that calls this a Transformers movie or even mentions uh, well, that. Well, not just that, movie. but now that we now that I've seen this film several times, there's no point if there ever was watching any of the Transformers live action films. Yeah, because I, uh, even though I love Optimus Prime as a character, Stacker has a big chunk of Optimus in there already pegged. And you've got that character type, but expanded and advanced upon. And he was the only reason for me to like the first Transformers film. Or any of them. Carry on now, Josh. No, I, I, just to expand on your point, I, I'm glad this movie exists because it points out what's wrong with the Transformers movies, and it's not the fact that they're about big, giant robots. It's the people making the film that's the problem. Um... You can make this concept work and have loads of drama and loads of characters that you actually care about. It just needs to be in the hands of somebody who knows what storytelling actually is instead of a guy who thinks storytelling is how many explosions and how many <laughs> metal girders are flying through the air. I would like any- to point out, Josh, something you said to Neil on this very podcast. Michael Bay did not invent explosions. He did not, not invent- to defend the fucker. Um. It's it, the thing is, it's not the fact that the Transformers films are about big giant robots. It's the fact that they're not about anything else. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everything else is just sort of busy work. Well, the humans sort of running about the place, making terrible jokes and um, alarming racial slurs. <laughs> Uh, okay, right. So let's uh, look at uh, the character of Riley Beckett, played by Charlie Hunnam. Yeah. Also, Play- it's Riley. 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 Not Riley. Riley. <laughs> okay, so character. <laughs> okay, so our first character study will look at Riley Beckett, played by Charlie Hunnam, who just bullet time dodged 
Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Smart kid. Good lad. Uh, we actually saw him in a film that I had no idea he was in, and it's the it, polar opposite of this character. Um, Children of Men. Yes. He plays the really angry... I think he's Irish. He's the guy with the, the, the white raster with the dreadlocks who's just really got it in for Clive Owen for some reason. And he never... I, I seem to remember he never actually gets anything more than a mid-shot. You, you have to pick him out of the cast list. Yeah. I, I, I just saw his name and was like, no, it can't be him. But, yep, no, that was absolutely him. Um, and when I first started watching, I was like, "Why? Well, okay, so Johnny Template and his brother Johnny Template. I wonder which Johnny Template is going to die at this point, leaving this Johnny Template here. But at the same time, it was, you know, we'll talk about the soundtrack later, but what a way to start a film! Yeah. theme tune with assistance from Tom Morello by Raman Giovanni is my current favourite movie theme tune of all time it, it is just a fantastic piece of industrious humans triumph against all odds music isn't oh, it oh yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of the A-team by way of a very large orchestra I, I'm I, I love that I'm like you I, I have I've had that soundtrack on on fairly constant rotation for a very long time, and the the thing which fascinates me about that is, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge movie music nerd, and that theme tune, that that opening track, is such a perfect distillation of the entire character of the film. Yeah, it's people with their backs up against a wall, being desperate and inventive, and probably doomed, and not stopping and doing it anyway. There's a there's a single line of dialogue in the movie that just embodies it, and it's Stacker's line about, "Oh, we're not an army anymore, Mister Beckett. We're the resistance," yeah. and it puts me in mind weirdly of enterprising young men from the first Abrams uh, Star Trek movie. There is the there's the same cheeky is the wrong word. There is the same kind of punky air to it. That kind of no, the odds don't actually matter. We're going to win anyway. Screw you, kind of feel which you don't get with an awful lot of movie soundtracks. The vast majority of the orchestral ones tend to be bombast or, you know, kind of full-on ambient doomstep or whatever. And it that com- coming so soon after that just incredible opening montage, yeah. it's a hell of a mission statement for any movie. It opens so fucking strongly. It really does. The only other one that's come close in recent years is actually the Avengers theme, which, again, yes. is incredibly stirring and has that same sense of uh, valiance in the face of danger. Is valiance a word? It is now. It is now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a word. It, it is now. sounds like it should be. It describes to be valiant. Anyway. We would also have accepted valiosity, but valiance is better. 
So it was actually Del Toro's idea that there should be two pilots. And uh, again, I've heard people go, two pilots for some reason. This never really explained. It is absolutely explained. They just didn't explain it in words of one syllable in the way that uh, Michael Bay. I mean, they did. They, they, we it found tells you straight up why. The dual load much. was too much for one person. And, and that doesn't seem to be enough of an explanation for some people. They're like, well, yes, but why? They it don't, makes so they don't. much sense that this should be something that cannot be just one person. It actually almost makes the idea of um, the, the, the mech history that's always tended to be just one guy inside a Gundam short-sighted as to what that would actually do to a person. If you think about the, the traditional um, pilot films as well, it's the pilot and the navigator. There's there's two of them. That's how you run those things because if you're in there on your own, you are ridiculously isolated. Yeah, I was about to time in being the otaku that I am, obviously have a, a big thing for mech stuff anyway, and it was really nice to see the fact that instead of going the traditional route of the, the single pilot like Hero Yui or someone, you, you have this a two-pilot system, which I really like, especially because the controls for the Jaegers are very different to what you see in most of the anime stuff. Uh, yeah. You look at something like uh, Gundam Wing, it's for example. It's joysticks, isn't it? It's joysticks, it's buttons, whereas this, it's actual body movements. They yeah. do perform the act of walking to make the robot walk. I like that. That was a nice, different take, and it helps um, differentiate itself from anything like that so it does stand out there's something very symbolic as well about uh, if, if it was all isolated human pilots in individual mech suits and they were all charging in at the same time that would be like humans but even more badass an extension of the suit of armor like Iron Man but the idea that it's actually two people together they're all pretty much holding hands as they go into battle and it, it, yeah. it's making a very strong statement we will win but only if we work together this is not about the individual hero this is about unity yeah there's also an, uh, there's a really interesting transhuman element to it as well mm. which is overting the novelization and they kind of bounce off it a little bit in the movie they hint at it certainly in Stacker's death scene which is according as again I believe it's according to Beecham Everyone who has ever drifted leaves an impression. The drift is the same neurological or metaphorical location. So when he uh, says you'll find me in the drift, he means he literally, literally means you'll I will be in the there, bits of me. Yeah. Whoa. And Could that be compared to the... I don't really want to say the cloud, but the, the digital... The soul cloud? Collective? Undoubtedly. Yeah, some kind of uh, digital matrix that has been set up by the inception of the drift that will be added to and augmented by the addition of different people's digitally projected souls. And, and essentially, once you get into that, what you're talking about is is a 21st century version of ancestor wisdom, which collective is, race memory, collective race memory, which in turn ties very strongly into the huge amounts of, for some people, slightly misguided martial arts philosophy that lie behind the movie yeah um and that had just blew me away when when I, I i read about that because it's such a it's such a spiritual idea and it's one that speaks absolutely to to what you just said alex the people literally will go into battle in this film holding hands everyone is connected even the people who aren't actually connected that ties into shintoism as well doesn't it completely del toro said um very specifically that uh, when it came to the actual um animation of the suits he wanted it done uh, frame by frame with uh, hand animation the idea that the uh, animators would be uh, using the using the computer as a tool to shape the movement 
Um, he, he was very... Uh, emphatic. He was emphatic that the dismissal of CGI animation uh, was unfounded. The idea is that this is a tool set, and I think he was aiming that one at you, Neil. They could have gone with uh, performance capture or motion capture, but the Jaegers themselves are not people. The, the Jaegers are not biological beings. They're not moving as a person moves. There, there is a person inside them, but they are themselves mechanical. And so that had to be um, composed by a machine and mm. informed upon by the um, influence of humans. I love the way the Jaegers move in mm. this movie. Um, I hate to bring up Transformers again. No, go for but it. I'm going to. Um, one of the things I find so distracting about that movie is you have these huge, heavy robots that move lightning at lightning speed all over yeah. the place. Uh, there's no sense of weight to those machines. Whereas in uh, Pacific Rim, every movement feels like an effort. Every movement feels like it could destroy anything if it wasn't being uh, controlled by pilots who knew what they were doing. There's weight to their movement. There's a sense of impact when they hit things that isn't present in Michael Bay's terrible movies. That was just gonna say it's kind of exemplified in the the fight later on in in um, Hong Kong. The movement through the city is very precise for the machine because obviously you've got this. T- I, did they ever give a weight for these two hundred tons? I believe. Is it, yeah, there's this two hundred ton machine walking down the street. You can see how precise the movements are, and then you get into that the fight when the kaiju crashes through the building again. You get the you get a full and accurate impression of the weight that's moving around or even when it's picking something up in the uh, best way to describe it the knuckle duster scene you feel the weight and the power of these machines there's a perfect example of how uh, this is mishandled elsewhere if you look at the uh, fights in Transformers while they may be in slow motion usually with the Transformers flying through the air towards each other and clashing against each other um, you then compare that to the uh, G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra where they've been given these sort of suits that make the them move suits. about like Transformers. Uh, but they're six-foot men moving at exactly the same speed with exactly the same fluidity as these robots. There is no sense of scale there for either of them. They are moving at exactly the same speed. They may as well have been made by the same director. There's a very specific nature to the sense of scale in the film, at least how it's portraying. It's not that the robots are huge. It's that we are small. Mm. It goes over and over again, showing that we are the smallest thing. The the final shot when it sort of pulls away from uh, Raleigh and uh, Marco, they are the smallest thing. They were seemingly the least important in the giant battle that just went on, but it was down to them. It wasn't about the machinery. It wasn't about the military ordnance. It was down to humanity itself. A statement that despite the overwhelming nature of the universe and how imposing it is to be put up against something that we can't deal with on our own, standing together, despite the immense scale that we're facing, we can succeed. Just as a a quick aside about that last scene as well, um, this was something which I I didn't really spot until I I watched the Honest Trailers version of the Pacific Rim trailer, which, unlike an awful lot of that stuff, is, is actually really genuine. And affectionate, and oh yeah, it, 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 it's not the here are the nine hundred things we think are wrong with this movie in three minutes. Give us the clicks now, monkey boy. But they make the really interesting point that at the end, for the first time ever, they don't kiss. 
And I love that. I love that they don't need to because these two people have been inside each other's heads. Yeah. They are, they are already completely intimate and completely comfortable with that. And you don't get the contractually obliged boy kisses girl as helicopters fly overhead shot. And that's so refreshing. Yeah. I would have sworn loudly if that had happened. I think I would have heard you swear had mm. that happened. <laughs> I think you probably would. <laughs> There, um, there's repeated symbolism uh, throughout the movie that Mar- uh, Marco and Raleigh are two halves of the same whole, and uh, it's it seems not coincidental that they're both wearing shepherd's armor because they are male and female shepherd. <laughs> oh, I'm going to tell Marguerite about that, and she will she will be very very happy. I, and, and it that, goes one further. <laughs> it goes one further. Uh, there's three of them. Stacker is the third member of this trifecta uh, and he is the only other person to come out wearing that black shepherd armor uh, he's also anderson who was the shepherd that came before but never got the chance to be shepherd you're a very very smart man do you know that well thank you very much <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I don't know how much real mass effect uh, influence came across here but like just looking at the design I I was thinking there are two film series this guy needs to be uh, directing. Even if he just grabs them and runs off with his own premise and just does his own thing, even if it's the Guillermo del Toro version of these things. In the same way that Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, is very much Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy and not Mike Mignola's, although Mignola was still involved. Mass Effect and Bioshock. Hmm. If you look at yeah. the, uh, the the set design of the Shatterdome when they're sort of walking around with these giant clangy doors and just the scale and the sort of Bioshock most definitely. Although the last project he was trying to do uh, before this, anyone know what it was? Beyond the Mountains of Madness, wasn't it? It was the uh, the Lovecraft um, the, the Lovecraft love letter, and um, yeah, that, that it was going to have Tom Cruise, and he was pushing for an R rating, and the studio weren't budging. They were like, no, no, no it needs to be PG thirteen Lovecraft. Don't do PG-13 Lovecraft! You can, because technically Hellboy has quite a lot of Lovecraftian influence, but you're going to take away quite a lot of of what makes Lovecraft very impactful. And Hellboy literally adds kittens. And also, just because it's PG-13 doesn't mean that 13-year-old boys deserve Lovecraft. Yeah. Yeah. You have to That's, earn that shit. You've got to get a certain <laughs> level of maturity. I think wait for the R rating. Um, this isn't for the podcast, but seeing as you brought up Bioshock, I thought I'd mention this. Um, there's a great uh, podcast where Ken Levine and uh, Guillermo del Toro are on the same podcast talking to each other. Right. I will point it to your in your direction once this podcast is finished, yes, because it it's one of the most. It's not. It's um. It's a Rationals podcast. Oh right. Okay. Uh, they have their own podcast, and uh, Ken Levine was interviewing uh, Guillermo del Toro. It is one of the most interesting. Media Meetings of minds I've heard in a while, so I'll point it in your direction once the right, show's this finished. This podcast is finished. I'm going to go listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we win. End of. I think there are two things I got to say about both the morality and the soul and the design of monsters. Uh, Harryhausen always said that a great creature is only a creature that you can imagine in repose. Not only as a monster, but in repose. Because he said, look, look at a lion. It looks really majestic and beautiful, but when it's on top of you and is about to rip your face off, it's really scary. <laughs> now, that's a great monster. And I think that 
what you do that I relate to entirely is that you operate in the same principle I do. We don't design a monster as a function. We design characters. And I think there's a huge difference between a monster and a character that is a monster, you know? And it's very important to make this differentiation because most of the guys that design monsters, they really throw the kitchen sink at it. You know, they, they really try to put the frown and the big teeth and more is more. <laughs> Let's put wings. And now it has hair that is really bristling. And, and, you know, they kind of pile a bunch of details before defining the monster as a character. And I think that design should come out of character. And I think that's what you do brilliantly, and that's why some of the ambivalent creatures in Bioshock can provoke pity, horror, evoke beauty, evoke fragility, you know, make you sympathetic to them, and so on and so forth. And that's why I relate to that game so strongly. Yeah, I was watching Pan's Labyrinth and the relationship between the girl and the monster. There's a horror element, but there's also a beauty to it and a connection that she has to them. And I think that life is full of monsters. You know, like I think growing up when you're a kid and you're first encountering sex, you know, sex is, has that component of being both something that's very attractive and very scary at the same time. And those are the things that were most interesting are things that have that component of both attractiveness and repulsion. We were doing our recent demo for E3 and we tend to have a lot compared to other games of quiet times in our demos. And we have a lot of people on the team who get very nervous about that because they want shooting. They want shooting right away because that's what they're used to in video games. But I think, you know, if you don't have the same with Monsters Game of, if you don't have the human part, the shooting doesn't matter. If you don't have the human part, if you don't have that relatable part, the teeth doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it is absolutely true. And a lot of people create the monster as an incarnation of a function rather than a character. And I think this starts expanding into the world. You know, like when you create a world... First of all, as an artist, if you really are sincere about what you're creating and it really affects you personally, you're not doing it because it's cool or because it sells. You're doing it because it's vital for you to create that environment and that story. Then it's very cohesive at a visceral level and you can combine like you do sort of Ayn Rand with the aesthetics of deco and put a little bit of uh, steampunk and put a little bit of role-playing games and stuff like that and, and it all comes oh yeah it, that combines it and in a way those are things that if you didn't have the visceral instinct to combine them and the strength of spirit to combine them they they shouldn't and in the same vein i find myself when I did Devil's Backbone, which is my favorite movie, and Pan's Labyrinth, in both instances, people were saying, how are you going to combine a fantasy movie or a ghost story with the Spanish Civil War? Yeah, it's very, very political, <laughs> they, yeah. They don't go together. Okay, so let's go all the way back to Raleigh Beckett and his brother. Um, so, yeah, my immediate assumption was that this guy was just Johnny Template. But while he doesn't come across as this incredibly complex character in what he says, because he actually says very little, he's, he's mostly pretty silent throughout the whole thing, this guy is wounded. This guy has been... Uh, had he, he and his brother were so close and were in each other's heads so much, you know, just from growing up together, but then, you know, during the drift that having Yancey torn away from him at that stage uh, left him feeling like his arm was missing, left him feeling that Lyra, watching this, said it feels like half his heart has gone. This is a five-year-old girl. So, yeah, uh, the drift is very, very important to the overall story because it informs upon the characters and it's uh, it, it's all 
blend, uh, it, it's all tied into the unity aspects of it. And um, Raleigh is no longer whole. And very significantly, when he's working on the wall, it's in Alaska. He has not budged for five years. He's been frozen in place. There's an interesting point to maybe be made about, about wardrobe as well. Oh, yeah. There are there are th- kind of three very very notable outfits that Raleigh wears, and the first is the the kind of twin bomber jackets that he and his his brother, mm-hmm. who is I seem to remember also in Blacklist and playing a character I refer to as Agent Bumblefuck. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're wearing the kind of quintessential World War Two fighter pilot jackets, and that there's a kind of character beat encoded into that where you know these guys are rock stars at this point, and that in turn is encoded into the fact Raleigh doesn't take knifehead seriously, and it kills his brother doing it. Yeah. Then there's the very kind of muted. Very bulky kind of, uh, I refer to them as surly deckhand jumpers that he's wearing, um, when he's working on the wall and all the colors are dialed down. And it speaks to what Lyra said. Half his heart's missing. This guy isn't fully alive. He's not fully engaged. And then there's, as you put it, the shepherd armor. And it's the, the, that suit in particular, because I know there's a, there's another, um, Gypsy Danger exo suit which he wears I think only at the start it's but white it's the same suit but it's painted white and uh, the pilots of Striker Eureka wear the same suit but painted green aha and there, there is an element of almost I mean it's it's not particularly overt with, with Raleigh it's massively overt with Stagger there's an element of knight's armour oh yeah to that suit and he walks differently when that's when he puts that suit on, he stands up a little bit straighter. He does it's really swagger. interesting that, that they're using wardrobe all the way through that as a character beat for the guy. Because you're right, he doesn't say very much. But you look at him and everything he doesn't say, you can see. Mm. That's fairly strong throughout the whole thing. I think there are so many characters in this where you, you're not listening for the things they say that give away who they are and how they feel and, and what they think, you're literally looking for it. Yeah. There was a brilliant article that uh, Sharon and I just read before going in here uh, called The Visual Intelligence of the uh, movie Pacific Rim, uh, and it was from a blog called Storming the Ivory Tower. It's absolutely fantastic. The author's girlfriend has a condition which prevents her from understanding extremely fast-moving dialogue, but has extreme clarity of understanding of the visual spectrum. So while a lot of people came away from the film going, ah, that wasn't a very witty script, and it wasn't very pithy, and didn't have huge amounts of dialogue in it, like, say, The Avengers, or, or, or something like, say, The Dark Knight Rises, um, she got so much out of what was on screen, um, and... One of my favorite quotes from Del Toro on the commentary is that uh, he's not putting out eye candy. It's eye protein. <sighs> and and yeah, the, the whole film is filled with, you know, what we tend to do on Gonzo, where we go on and on about detail and little tiny things which have intent behind them. The whole film is full of that. And it just cries out for you to go through in HD and look at every single thing. One of the really important elements of that for me, the the visual side of it, um, was that something I have adored about Del Toro's work for a long time is this conflation of realism versus fairy tale that he works in. And both of those things take visuals 
to get them across properly, but they take very different types of visuals. And the realism side of things, it's all about the details. It's all about things that... A, help the actors maintain the reality of their performance because they feel like they're in that world. And B, the, almost the, the nature of that universe comes across to the audience, um, in a way that you, you can't do if everything's, if the, what you can see isn't so clear. You've got a very used world in this. It's almost like what, you got in the original Star Wars. Everything's a little bit scratched. The paint's a little bit chipped. And that helps to create this idea that this has been going on for a long time. But it's all visual. It's it's never in what people say. It's all in what you can see. And on the fairy tale side of it, using this very visual characterization, fairy tales work in extremely broad strokes. But they give you very clear, almost gut-wrenching messages about very deep things sometimes. And it's all about this clarity of what's shown and not said. And the, I mean, we, I'm assuming at some point we're going to talk about the color palette, but that was one thing that really sideswiped me. And especially when, um, when Del Toro was talking about it in the commentary, the fact that it is all about these very basic colors. You've, but you've got black, white, red, yellow, blue, and there's a little bit of green. What do the colors mean? Anybody? Well, the blue is often associated with the kaiju, so I wonder if that represents kind of danger in some way, because Gypsy Danger has some blue as well, so I wonder if that, I'm not sure what I'm saying here, someone else take my point and run with it. There's an element of everything, and I mean, this is folded into the story as well, where the idea that the kaiju blood is massively toxic. Yeah. There is an element of the kaiju blood staining everything. Yes. That the blue in the Jaeger color schemes oh. is, is there as an element, as kind of a reflection of them only existing because of the kaiju. There's also the beautiful thing, which it, again, like so much in the movie, isn't made immediately obvious, that Mako's two frontmost bangs have a blue tip in them. And I seem to remember the actress saying that she viewed this as Mako is born in, in kaiju blood. Yeah. And it's never <laughs> quite washed off. It's also a reminder to herself of her mission, which is revenge. The whole way through exactly. the film, even though she's very shy and she's very understated, she wants revenge for the death of her family and for the people of... Uh, was it Kyoto, the city? I that's where so, she yeah. grew up so I presume so let's go and say Kyoto then uh, her father this g- mentions it on the, uh, the there's a drift featurette on the uh, Blu-ray uh, her father was a sword maker and uh, she spent most of her childhood in his workshop sort of watching him work watching him make the blades there is something incredibly symbolic about when she pulls out the sword and says for my family and cuts off the wing of uh, Otachi uh, but at that stage, she's not just talking about her immediate family. Every single Jaeger pilot that she's known who has died fighting these things, she is getting vengeance for them. It is a stacking system of vengeance that everyone else who has shed blood for this goes onto her list. And and yeah, the, uh, the, these two blades of hair on either side of, of her head mean that every time she turns her head and looks at anything, they're always in the periphery. And they were also significantly the same colour as her coat. Oh, good spot. 
Oh, that was, uh, that was actually from Storm in the Ivory Tower. I had not spotted that one. That was from the uh, girlfriend of the person who wrote that. Born in Kaiju blood, absolutely. That, that's what the blue is. These things spout blue. And, uh, it is indeed toxic. The red, let's go to the gold first, actually. The gold is heroism. Can I just say yeah, one no, more thing yeah. about sure. the blue before we move on? I think, for me, the, cause I, I was trying to divide it up into, um, I have this obsessive thing about elements. Yeah. As you well know, I try to divide everything into neat groups of four. It doesn't always work, but um, the uh, the blue for me was because I, I started off thinking of it in terms of of the physical and the uh, sort of the externalization of um, what they were trying to do. Because as well as the kaiju, which are very physical beings, you've also got the fact that the the um, they're not even really military, are they? The Rangers, the the the, Rangers, um, yeah. the yeah, the the Shatterdome and the um, the uh, Jaeger pilots, sort of what they wear when they're not in their fighting clothes, as it were. Um, it's it, it's kind of referred to as like a black grey, but it's like this very military blue to me, possibly because I grew up around Air Force uniforms, which are a very grey, dark blue. Um, and it's so the blue to me was all about intent and action and very specifically aggressive action and attack in different ways because the uh, the uh, human blue is very, is kind of cold and the kaiju blue is much more intense and um, more instinctive I suppose um, but that ties into something that I I occurred to me later on about the kaiju being kind of the if you're going to divide it up into psychological subsets the kaiju are like the shadow of humanity and also the id of humanity in that they have this obsessive drive to consume or they are the um uh, the the agents of a culture which has an obsessive drive to consume which is kind of the worst of humanity if you want to look at it in that way yeah um but the uh, also the um the reference to marco's hair and the connection that that has with her um her memory of her childhood where that you know she lost her family it almost seemed to me that you can you can take Marco as a Jaeger in and of herself, that she is being piloted by her inner child, by this little girl that she has never fully let go of, that although in the in the moment and in even in the memory she's terrified everything in that scene is shot from her perspective so that you can fully grasp how frightening this is for her so terrifying she can't even look at it at the end all she can do is turn away and cover her head and just wait for it all to be over and the adult mako is almost like she now has this this suit which is capable which can deal with this and it's like that child has now got something that she can go out into the world with and be aggressive and take action and by god is she going to do that wow yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's always a silence after Sharon does a really long thing because everyone's just like I-, I need to absorb that okay well, I-, uh, I will follow that up with green which I have I personally am interpreting as safety uh, Cherno Alpha, very significantly, is green, piloted by two ex-prison wardens who patrolled uh, the Russian coast 
to ensure that the, no uh, Jaegers would uh, enter in. There's a lot of instances of ships with green lights, and, and, and the idea is that they're, they're, they're friendly and they're getting shoved out of the way by the uh, kaiju as they push through. All of the instances of green within the film tend to be in places where there's relative safety or, or, or at least preparedness. Gold is linked with heroism. When you first, when Stacker first meets Raleigh, he's bathed in golden light. And you're in the middle of the uh, Shatter Dome, there's gold light everywhere. At the end, there's, there's specifically a lot of uh, sort of instances of gold. Red might, on, uh, on the surface, I started going, well, is this to do with danger? Is this to do with, uh, with blood? Yes and no. It is blood. It's specifically human blood that we're shown is very significantly the opposite of the the, the kaiju's blue blood. Uh, but it only tends to be shed at a point where somebody is sacrificing or undergoing pain in order to uh, harness their own humanity. Um, Stacker uh, bleeds from his nose to show that he has pushed and pushed and pushed himself beyond the limits. Marco's shoe that she's traveling through uh, Kyoto with in, in, in the ruins is her heart. Very specifically, she turned around to uh, to catch it, and because she did that, she didn't die like the rest of her family. So she goes around cradling this broken little shoe, and Stacker keeps it and then gives it to her to remind her of her... Uh, to, to set her heart to her quest of vengeance. It's, it's, it's representative of everything that's been bled out of her that she needs to hold on to. That moment as well, that, that was huge for me when, uh, when Pentecost gives her the shoe. Because what I said before about, um, Del Toro working in, in fairy tale themes and ideas, red shoes are quite massive in, in fairy tales. Red generally, but red shoes, there's, there's a very particular, um, fairy tale that is incredibly significant for me, which is called the red shoes. And it's about a little girl who, um, makes her own red shoes out of cloth just because she loves the color. Um, but people who are basically trying to mold her into something that she, she doesn't really want to be say that they're not appropriate and they take them away from her. And she's just really desperate throughout her life to get those shoes back but she replaces them with um, store-bought red shoes, which end up basically being the end of her. But the the idea that this, this red shoe, to me, represents a, a sense of self, specifically a sense of little girl self, but I, I would imagine that you could probably apply it to anybody. Um, but this idea of, of being able to create your own destiny. And that has been in Stacker's keeping. And when he gives it to her, he is basically giving her, I wouldn't exactly call it permission, but he is giving her approval for her to go out into the world and act in her own agency. And, and saying to her, I now, I believe you can do this. I have faith in you that you can now carry this for yourself. Well, he's, well, he's those, getting out of her way. Yeah. Exactly, yes. Those, those two characters do have a father-daughter relationship, and it did feel like in that moment it was like, I'm letting my child go out into the world, and hell, there'll be problems that they'll have to face and, you know, trials, but they're grown up now. I can't be there to uh, coddle them and try and hide them away forever. Go free, you know make mistakes, do whatever you want, but just make sure it's what you want to do. There's two other instances of red. Um, Newton, Geisler, and Gottlieb both drift with uh, Kaiju, and that 
even though Newton was doing it for selfish reasons and uh, to be exploratory to begin with, that is his unwitting sacrifice because he's laying himself on the line there and he's he's doing it in the name of science and then bleeds on his shirt and his eye gets all bloodshot. And then Gottlieb, when he drifts, is doing it, again, for humanity. And it's specifically a huge thing when Newton says, you'd do that for me? I mean, with me? It, like I say, it's, it's, it's a self-sacrificial moment. And, of course, the most self-sacrificial moment comes at the very end when Pentecost and also uh, Chuck are bathed in red light of their cockpit. So this natural human assumption, the red equates to danger. The red equates to their humanity and their willingness because they went in there. They got into Striker Eureka knowing they weren't coming out. They, they stepped up to sacrifice themselves and being bathed in red at that point is emblematic of that sacrifice. There's, I, I've just double checked this against an image as well. There's also something else mm. which kind of speaks back to you, to your, the, the idea of, of, you know, Shepard being from Mass Effect being represented by three different characters in this. Mm-hmm. Um, Gypsy's shoulder pads. Oh yeah. Have a very N7-esque red flash. And it's sufficiently ambiguous enough that it might just be red paneling or a red flash going down the side of the two shoulder pads. But there is just enough of a similarity to it to make, to make me wonder whether that ties into, again, the kind of epitome of human heroism and self-sacrifice yeah. that both versions of Shepard embody. And I'm not, I'm not certain, but I, I think Gypsy is the only Jaeger that has that kind that particular inc- um, decal. You may be right on that one. I definitely got a, a, a shepherdy flash about that uh, when I, I saw her. I, w- I want to call Gypsy her, although I think at some point uh, Raleigh actually refers to Gypsy as him. But it's a her, really. Look no, at that. No, Marco says her heart. When was the last time you saw it? Of yes. course. Yeah, it's a her. Okay. Yeah, speaking of her heart, uh, it's Iron Man's heart. It, it glows between orange uh, and blue, but very specifically at the beginning. It comes churning up, and you get that same idea and the same symbolism of this is a heart for all humanity again. And th- at that point, when uh, which you just mentioned with, with Marco, that, that's the point when they're finally laid bare to each other, and they've, um, they've got nothing else left to hide. And uh, they're sitting in front of Gypsy, sort of ruminating on what they have left to do. Yes, it's one of the best uh, moments for me. I think Gypsy's heart, for me, brought the idea of this, uh, the the combining of the whole of of humanity and what is represented by those primary colours. Because it starts out, when it starts to warm up, it's red, then it goes to yellow, and then it finally goes to blue when it's at its most intense. And like I said, for me, the blue was kind of the, the decisive aggressive action the red as you've said is is the heart and the 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 core of the nature of humanity and yellow for me whenever yellow showed up it was about knowledge and insight and understanding and basically the idea that the heart gives you the starting place and you can't do anything without it but without moving that on to knowledge and insight it can't act on its own and then you have to go from that combining of heart and courage and, and love and um, and intent through knowledge and insight and understanding and then finally manifest that as action if you want to get anything done. And of course Gypsy's last weapon before she explodes is to blast the living shit out of the, the biggest level 5 kaiju with her heart. 
she's also the only one that has that particular chest plate. Yeah. Um, and it's particularly significant with Stryker and, and the kind of very interesting levels of, of masculine mindset of a, very, of a very particular sort that you get with the two Hansen men. That Stryker, that Stryker Eureka's heart is not only not covered, or covered rather, but that Stryker has the largest chest. Mm. That you know, it's extremely, very, very built out, very, very armored. And there's almost a, a case for saying that the, the kind of emotional catastrophe that is the Hansen men's family relationship is reflected in the configuration of the Jaeger they're driving. And of course, behind the uh, chest plate, you get eight giant penis missiles. But you don't get much more macho than that. Really, emblematic of aggression <laughs> being uh, held. You know, you know, you laid my heart bare. Right, well, I'm going to shoot you in the face with a missile. Uh, let's talk about Herc and Chuck Hansen because when I first saw the film, I was like, "Wow, Chuck Hansen is like I mean, th- this has been um, arranged like a sports movie by Del Toro on purpose." And uh, Chuck specifically is the the star quarterback guy who sort of comes in, and he's like cartoonishly angry, angrily um, arrogant uh, towards Raleigh. And like, he's, he's so rude immediately from the get go, with with no uh, course for it. But at the same time, by the end. You realise that underneath all of that, he's just mush, and he's just over-egging the arrogance pudding. There's a, a really interesting take on Chuck, which Marguerite found, and I, unfortunately I can't cite the source for it, ah. which is it becomes a completely different movie if you approach it as Chuck is gay, and he is completely in denial over his sexuality. And Herc has known for a long, long time because, of course, they drifted over and over again. Chuck never wanted to speak about it. And oh, it my becomes, God, that'd be brilliant. Exactly. And it completely changes the dynamic with Raleigh. It completely changes the dynamic with Dad. Yeah. And it even puts a very different spin on, on one of my favorite scenes, which is the last conversation that Chuck and Stacker have. When Stacker has that line where he kind of very gently says, you're a puzzle I solved on day one. And if you interpret Chuck as a man who is completely at odds with his own sexuality with his own sense of personal identity that line from Stacker almost becomes reassuring, it almost becomes no it's okay, I know too, everyone does it's alright and Herx you got my son there, my son in this, there is nothing that will stop you being my son precisely god, that's Fantastic. Marguerite is. Uh, did, did you say Marguerite found that or figured that one out? She found that. Oh, I, will, right. I will find the source for you. But uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call that canon. Shall we call that canon? <laughs> the thing is, though, if you if it's if not, it bloody way, should be. <laughs> if, if you look at the way this is structured in terms of the how the the pilots interact, there is so much in this about. Um, intimacy and and that's what the drift kind of becomes this shorthand for and because of the fact that you don't have almost the the only kind of intimacy that that big tough action movies are normally used to is either male female intimacy and straight male female intimacy i might add or the kind of bro intimacy that's not really intimacy it's the punch on the shoulder because you can't quite bring yourself to give the other person a hug but even 
outside of of that notion of of Chuck being gay and not and totally not being able to admit it even to himself, let alone to anyone else, you've got an examination of the intimacy between a father and son. You've got the intimacy uh, between um, Newt and Gottlieb when they drift together. Mm. Um, the the fact that they are clearly two people who have been hurt immensely through especially the young part of their lives where they were outcasts in their own um, environments and you know would have been a tiny flash of Gottlieb crying and clearly being bullied absolutely and the idea that they that that's that's the kind of thing that by and large even now men and boys are not encouraged to share that these things when they happen they fucking hurt but you can't ever talk about it with somebody and you certainly can't cry about it with somebody and that idea that that within this drift within this space you don't have to say it you don't have to overcome that block in your throat that doesn't let you talk about it the fact that you can't keep the tears out of your eyes when you actually form the words you don't have to in the drift they just know that the drift becomes a literal and metaphorical safe space. Basically. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Neil, uh, Josh, well, we've been talking and talking and talking and not letting you talk. Uh, anything about something that we've covered already or, or uh, that you, that you, if you want to move the conversation onto something that you've got something to say about, go for it. I want to give you a space. It's just something I sat here thinking about the colours and you're on about red. Oh, yeah? I'm trying to work out how that theory applies to Hannibal. Hannibal Ch- Ah, because he hasn't sacrificed shit. No, he is. <laughs> and he's clothed all in false red. Yeah. And false gold. He's yeah. not a hero. Yeah. He's no, totally he's not, not a hero. Himself up in that stuff and uh, pretended. I, we could talk about Hannibal now if you want the lovely, wonderful Ron Perlman. Just because the apocalypse is here doesn't mean you can't look and feel your best. My exclusive kaiju harvesting and preservation process can provide you with all the kaiju organs, tissue, and bodily fluids you need to lose weight, look younger, beat cancer, prevent heart attacks and strokes, cure insomnia, reverse balding, treat depression, anxiety, ED, OCD, ADD, lactose intolerance, incontinence, and restless leg syndrome. Our products are 100% authentic and non-toxic. We thoroughly neutralize the acidity of all kaiju remains to ensure they're completely safe for your consumption. So don't wait one more minute. End your suffering, enhance your life, and be the best you you can be before we all become extinct. Call, click, or look for your kaiju symbol at your local black market today. What do you want? I'm looking for Hannibal Chow. I was told he was here. Who wants to know? I really can't say. <laughs> ah! Ah! Doctor Pentecost sent me. Ah! Ah! Oh, that's great. That's real great. So I take it you're you're Hannibal Chow, right? I like the name. I took it from. Uh... My favorite historical character and my second favorite Sichuan restaurant in Brooklyn. Now tell me what you want, before I get you like a pig and feed you to the skin louse. I was so happy when he turned up. Oh yeah. I was like, ah, he is, he is to go, uh, Del Toro what Bruce Campbell is to Sam Raimi now, I yeah. swear. Yeah. Because uh, he was, has anyone seen Kronos? 
Yes. Ooh. It's it's Del Toro's first uh, vampire film prior to Blade Two. Uh, it's, it's it's a vampire type film because it's it's uh, it's mechanical in nature. Uh, it's it's got a weird kind of clockwork device at its core, and uh, a young Ron Perlman's in that. And and yeah, he's been with him since the beginning. I do like that character though because he's such a believable character. Mm. If someone would rise up from from this disaster from the disaster of the kaiju attacks to make profit. Well, well, those people exist. Like, oh, yeah. you, you only have to look about, uh, look at, you know, the people profiteering from conflicts in uh, the Middle East and so forth and so on. The, the, these people exist, and this is absolutely what would happen if a big tragedy like the kaiju turned up. Yeah. Somebody would figure out a way to merchandise them, collect all their, you know, bones and specimens and so forth. A, a black market would almost certainly form around these massive creatures. The funniest moment in the film for me, and and it shouldn't be funny because it's a character dying, but the moment where he gets eaten yeah. and the baby well, he doesn't kaiju. die he, he yeah. comes back at the end tell yeah. me you've seen the end bit where he comes back oh I haven't is there there's a post dude post- I think Blu-ray and watch it about a million times oh okay he's alive <laughs> oh go to YouTube oh fact, sorry is, is it, was it Cinema Sins or on his trailers that pointed that out as I well I think this is kind of important for folks to see have you not seen it since the cinema Josh I haven't seen this since the cinema. Ah, okay, that would explain. Where is my goddamn shoe? (laughs) (laughs) I air punched and said, you cannot kill Ronnie Perlman. No, especially if you're this Cthulhu-looking thing. You swallow him, he's going to come right out of you, and you're going to come off the worse. So yeah, uh, Hannibal Chow, I mentioned this to Sharon because he's this wonderful combination of uh, faux cowboy and faux mandarin. He comes off like a character from Firefly. Yes, he does. Yeah, no, he, yeah, he and does. Badger would would have a very entertaining night out oh, in the God, town. This and film it. has to happen. <laughs> I would watch just that film. But yeah, this kind of slow, jazzy, kind of cowboy funk thing going on in the background with Chinese influences. He's the perfect example of someone who draws as much to him as will be of use to him, clothes himself in, in whatever will be, uh, will get him noticed and uh, aggrandized, and then just kind of feeds off everybody else. Again, there's the, the shoe thing comes back because obviously Marco's got her uh, little red shoe and he has his awesome looking cowboy plated lames shoe. Eagle-eyed Guillermo del Toro fans will recognize Santiago Segura as uh, the guy who says uh, You're looking for some kaiju bone powder. Some, some bone? Some bone powder? Uh, no. Why would I want that? Male potency. <clears throat> I take it myself. I see. Uh, no. Thank you. Anybody recognize what else he's been in in del Toro films? Oh, hang on, he's in Blade... It's Blade 2 guy, isn't it? It is uh, Blade 2 guy. Did did you think I forgot about you? Yes. And then he stabs him in the face. Uh, Yeah, he's the comedy vampire with the the, the red feather boa in Blade 2. And he's also the guy, um, the train driver, who hits Hellboy in the face repeatedly uh, with a fire extinguisher in the first Hellboy. 
I haven't seen Hellboy in a while. I might have to go back and watch that again. You should. Um, yeah, he's one of uh, Mexico's biggest comedians. So uh, it's, I think uh, Del Toro said back in the earlier uh, commentary, which is probably not so true now, uh, but that you know he himself, Del Toro, was nobody in his native land in comparison to Santiago Segura, and that this guy would get mobbed if they went on tour. Hannibal is there to uh, to show the uh, world's reaction to the kaiju uh, and uh, how that can be exploited. But he nonetheless has a huge part to play because he provides Dr. Geisler with a working brain. Right. Here's, a, here's one negative point, and it's mainly because... It's mainly because I uh, have done a lot of research into biology and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, they mention the fact that, oh, kaijus, they have two brains, like dinosaurs have. <laughs> dinosaurs don't have two brains. Uh, <laughs> sorry, guys. In fact, the Stegosaurus has such a tiny brain that when scientists realized how small it was, they spent ages trying to figure out how the hell this thing could even exist. <laughs> um, so brain size, I'm sorry to say, has no effect on how big an animal can be. Uh, uh, the kaiju could have like, minuscule pea-sized brains and still be as big as they are. Yeah. So that, that's one little negative point that I found in the film. But that's why big dogs really. like uh, St. Bernard's would be much smarter than little dogs like Jack Russell's. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Also, did anybody else... I, I may have misinterpreted this, but it appeared that it keeps its second brain up its arse. Insert your own joke here. Indeed. Something about men. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Would I? <laughs> right. Um, now it's probably, uh, now that we've lowered the tone, enough uh, time to talk about the other Jaegers, Cherno Alpha, Crimson Typhoon, Striker Eureka, uh, and their designs and the application of them. I am a shrieking Cherno Alpha fanboy. Oh, Crimson I Typhoon! Adore, I adore that magnificent, ugly Russian bastard because <laughs> every single line of that Jaeger's design is, again, speaks to character. Yeah. Uh, again, I mean, this is personal canon more than anything else, but I, I long ago decided that Cherno Alpha actually has the reconditioned Chernobyl nuclear reactor for a head. Nice. It, it certainly has a cooling chamber. It's it's very specifically designed that way. And I love that it's old school. I love that you have this thing this huge and slow and almost but not quite impossible to kill. It's a perfect, weirdly, capture of the Russian spacecraft design philosophy. Mm. There was... Um, Jerry Leninger was one of the first US astronauts to spend time on, on the Mir. He hated it. He hated it so much, he wrote a very long book about how much he hated it. And the, the big reason for this was Leninger had come up through the US astronaut culture. He'd come up through large amounts of money, you know, lots of time spent designing stuff, everything nailed down to the absolute most complex, most effective thing. His first memory, one of the first things he talks about in this book is him looking out of the window of the Soyuz on the way up to Mir and watching the solder on the solar panels visibly bubble. <laughs> and yeah. that brutal pragmatism 
that is at the heart of an awful lot of Russian military design thinking is absolutely there in Cherno. And I love, firstly, that it's embodied so perfectly. Secondly, I find it almost impossible to not, you know, utterly, utterly adore a Jaeger that has Tesla fists. <laughs> yes. I, I want I want albums by a band called Tesla. <laughs> and Russian prog rock. Exactly. And thirdly, I love the fact that it gets them killed. That it, Cherno is the ultimate embodiment of old school thinking. It's mm. that guy's got a really big tank. We get a really bigger tank and we just stand here and hit it till it falls over. And I love that Cherno dies ultimately because in many ways it embodies the same thing the wall does. It embodies a holding action. And it goes back to the two pilots in the line about, you know, they, they stood on the wall for six years and nothing came through them. They didn't move forwards. And the kaiju advance, the kaiju get much better at what they do, and the kaiju kill them. And for that, and those are really the two reasons why I, I adore Cherno up and down and left and right. It looks badass. It looks completely like what you would imagine a Russian Jaeger to look like. And even its death serves a perfect narrative and thematic purpose. You love it for its weaknesses as well. I really do, which is dreadfully Russian of me. It's uh, it's designed to be extremely utilitarian after the T-Series tank, uh, which, uh, again, is an ugly thing, but uh, designed to be more useful and practical than attractive. And I don't know if anyone noticed, but watch its right fist repeatedly. It has a giant roll of quarters that thunks into its hand so that it can punch with extra weight. The, the, you see, stuff like that is the reason why in February, when the Cherno toy comes out, that's the only one I'm getting. Do want. <laughs> Do want. I think as well, I might have read something totally unintended into this, and this might just be me. Um, but one thing that you mentioned, Alex, when we were talking about it, was the fact that the uh, Crimson Typhoon and Cherno Alpha get taken down so fast in that fight. And I think you could see that as an extension of emphasizing the um, kaiju's presence as consumerists because think about it what are those two states what are the what is the the political ideology that is most associated with china and russia oh bloody hell that's brilliant communism yeah and what does consumerism do to communism crushes it from behind that's With extreme prejudice. Well, well communism is. isn't watching its back. Well, the other funny thing is, uh, I like Crimson Typhoon because it's it's almost the exact opposite of Cherno mm-hmm. because it is the most up to date, technically advanced one. And for all its yes, big flashes and bangs, it still gets crushed the same yeah. way because while it's pushing the boundaries, it's still slightly untested. It's got that great third arm, which is great for certain manoeuvres that they've worked out, but when it gets grabbed by the other two arms, this third one's flapping about totally useless because it can't reach around. It, it, the thunderclap formation. Yeah. It's... I, I, I do love... I, it was... The only thing that I have a real problem here is they introduced these two great machines and then about five minutes later kill them. Well, no, the, the, that, that serves a purpose, though. Like... 
you they build up the fact that these machines are really powerful yeah they can you know they've killed loads of kaiju these guys know what they're doing and then these two kai you know these more advanced kaiju roll up and completely destroy them it those uh those jaegers are there to show you how big a threat these new kaiju are yeah. to our protagonists Striker um, Chuck actually mentions uh, has taken out 10 kaiju and if you remember back at the very beginning Raleigh was saying that they were going to see if they could notch up a fifth so it's 4 to 10 hmm interesting so Gypsy really is I mean not not exactly a rookie although Marco was always characterized as a rookie but uh, that the burnout who uh, was was dropped before she could reach her potential one thing I was going to mention about Striker, about when we were talking about the uh, the evident weight in the animation of the uh, Jaegers as well, um, Striker is introduced as the fastest Jaeger mm. there is. The scene where you actually get to see—is Striker a he or a she? That's a he. He, right? All okay. those missiles in the chest—that's a he. Fair point. Right. The scene where you actually get to see Striker run. He is very fast once he's built up speed, but to begin with, and I know he's obviously running through very deep water, so that's going to have an effect, an effect as well, but it takes him a long time to build up that momentum. So again, that adds to this idea that they are real, they are very, very solid and very, very heavy, and it to accomplish that in CG is hard even now it's it's not well I, I, I am not an animator I can't speak of how difficult it is but it doesn't seem to happen very often there were various paintings that were actually uh, massively inspirational for this as well. There's, um, I can't remember the name of it. The, the waves in the actual film are based on Japanese art. And Francisco Goya's The Colossus, uh, which is, um, I will describe it here, it is a uh, an enormous man standing next to uh, uh, fleeing animals, uh, but um, up, submerged up to his waist in water. And he's also in a fighting pose. As well, so I mean, basically, you just put armor on that thing, and it's gypsy danger. Yeah, this is uh, and Hokusai's the Great Wave of Kanagawa is a reference for the film's ocean battles. And uh, very specifically, uh, um, Del Toro pointed out that at the beginning, he's he's sick of f- films which uh, showcase and highlight their awesome machinery and go look at this and like show it in perfect clarity and uh, and, and you you know you get to see it fully. There are times when he deliberately fluffs the shot, especially at the beginning with knife head, uh, where you can almost not see it and. The um, helicopters that fly around frequently lighting the scene are your little key grips, giving you the light that you otherwise uh, would would require in a uh, a real space on a film set. It, it, it gives a sense of scale because it's just not lit properly in the in the same way because it's it's too vast for the lighting. Uh, there's the imperfections a, the, are what make it work. Absolutely, yeah, the imperfections, and that's why I, I tend to um, like found footage movies because they are. Um, uh, quite uh, grainy and sloppy and imperfect and uh, the, the the central conceit of why would this idiot still be holding the camera after everyone he knows is dead is is a fallacy but i do like the experience of found footage movies um but but yeah that's there's a certain sensibility to that in the way that the uh that the fight, specifically the kaiju uh, and jaeger fights are shot and there's a point when uh gypsy's fighting leatherback where it rears up and at its base, there is sort of golden light from the street level. And at the top, there is a cold blue light from the sky. 
and it's so big, uh, it's like a building. It, it it actually transcends more than one different lighting structure. That's how big it is, and that is how the scale is sold. That's really smart. Oh yeah, uh, I, I I'll say again. Everybody listen to the commentary. It is sublime. It is basically Guillermo del Toro conducting a two-hour film school. How do you decide what to say no to then? Because your name gets attached to a lot of different kinds of projects mm-hmm. and, you know, often for years at a time. And, and it's sort of an interesting contrast. You know, I, I've followed your sort of the arc of possibly making Mountains of Madness. And I've yes. seen some interviews you talking about that. And I gathered that at this point is kind of on hold, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that in my mind, every movie is always on hold, at least, at least in Hollywood, you know, because I call Hollywood the land of the slow no. You know, literally, it takes them two fucking years to say no. Yeah. You know, and it takes them two years to be chicken sheds here or chicken sheds there in one way or another. So I have some of the best movies I've written. They, they are the ones that are not shot. I have a movie that is an adaptation of the Count of Monte Cristo as a Gothic Western in the 1800s where the Count has a mechanical hand. I have a, <laughs> I have a, a movie called Mephisto's Bridge, which I adore that never got made. I have Mountains of Madness, but, but at least in Mountains of Madness, I understood the big gestures. I mean, I cannot fault the studio for saying no to an R-rated $150 million horror yeah. film. I, I don't share their point of view, but I cannot fault them. But many times they are just compulsively safe-seeking. So you, I never know. What I try to do is because I, I'm related to comic books very easily by the industry. They come to me with literally, I'm not joking, every single large superhero franchise Ever, I've been offered. I, I, you know, you, you know the ones, those are the, the big ones. And when I don't relate to the franchise, I just say, no, no, I don't. You know, I, I always say it's really hard to fuck without a boner. You know? So, you know, and a movie is a marriage. You yeah. cannot simulate a boner and you're going to go through a long, long period of interaction with the movie in which it's going to show when you were not interested. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think when you start your career, you're so hungry for anything. You know, you're like, oh, I could do I could do this, I could do that. But the first game I got to do was something I was very passionate about. But it very easily could have been something I was dispassionate about. And the problem, I think, is what Guillermo's talking about, is that when you actually have to facing two, three, four, five years of something, and you're not passionate about it, it's not like a bank where you could check all the boxes. If you're not passionate about it, it's not going to be good, and it's going to come across in the work, and not always going to be a dreadful experience for you to make. It's going to be a dreadful experience for the audience to watch because yeah. it's nobody, you know, as Guillermo <laughs> eloquently put it, nobody wants to watch that kind of sex scene where, where nobody's excited. <laughs> um, the, and, you, 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 the, that kind of sex scene where you would need a spatula. That's right. <laughs> hey, 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 I, that sounds like a, a solution for a lot of people who have that problem, a spatula. Yeah, the spatula, the spatula filmmaker and the spatula game designer. No, but you, you know, the thing that I, I'm fascinated by is when you're privileged enough to identify those crossroads when you have the chance of selling out or not, and you actually don't sell out, and they are, then they remain private landmarks. 
you know, it's very hard to brag about them because the context is very hard to transmit in those personal situations. But I, I'm, I'm really happy I've gone through them. And you can think about even the commercial movies like Blade 2. I did it with the same passion I did anything. And I yep. love it. I love that goddamn movie. But I said no to much juicier ones because I was not the guy to do it. I, I remember reading Seven before it got made. And I talked to Mike DeLuca at Newland and he said, what do you think? And I said, look, it's a great story, but you need... I'm a romantic at the end of the day, strangely enough. I see myself as a romantic. And you need somebody that is a very intelligent skeptic to shoot Seven. Yeah, yeah. And right. I said, I cannot do it. And I was just after Kronos. So I was super hungry. But I think that you have to have the presence of mind to say to say no. I think no is the hardest word to learn as an artist. We haven't spoken about Choi, but there's not really much to say, is there? Tendo's fun. He he gets quite a lot of background in um, Tales from Yazira, and it's interesting. It, it, his background in that is arguably the one part of it that isn't a perfect fit, mm-hmm. because he's um, I think he's first officer on a tour boat in in, in San Francisco right, when, so he was there. when Trespasser arrives, and he is in the city as it's being destroyed, rescues his grandfather who gets splashed with, with kaiju blood and dies, and Tendo sees San Francisco nuked. And I mean, the, the way Tales from Your Zero is configured is it's uh, a reporter basically taking oral histories from Tendo and Stacker and two or three other people. And it's he has a really interesting past, and it's it's one of those things which the movie inevitably kind of has to throw under the bus a little bit. Yeah. Because he's much more of an everyman than he's presented as. And that's arguably the one beat in the characters that's missing that you have the knights you have you know mako and rally and stacker and chuck and, and chuck and chuck and, and hook and you know you have the scientists with with um newton and you know owen okay. from torchwood and um <laughs> yes. he was also a dark knight rises as well he got he, really on, was, he got he? on bane's bad side yeah oh mr Bane had control. a good song uh, yes, and, I'm certainly very pleasant with some people. I <laughs> if you look at Choi's hand, though, um, I don't know if it's more than once, but he has a rosary wrapped around his arm. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of emphasizes the idea of him being the everyman. All he has at this point is faith. He can talk to them. He can help them connect with each other, but he can't actually get involved in what they're doing. All he can do is have faith that they will win. And it, interestingly, now you mentioned that, that ties into into the other thing. When it, again, it's a tiny little beat, but quite often you see Tendo eating or drinking. Um, you, you get that fantastic moment of him kind of walking into main control with four cups of coffee, which I think are for him, and, and like one one donut in his mouth. And I, I love the fact that this guy, as you say, because you know he's the everyman, because he's on the line, the thing he can do is he can stand watch at his post, and that means that he has the rosary. And that means that if he's going to stay up for 24 hours and get jacked on coffee and bagels, that's what he's going to do. 
And it, it, it speaks to kind of basically points everyone has made over the course of the conversation so far, that this is a movie about both stacked vengeance and stacked heroism. The, the, you know, the, uh, Jaeger pilots go out and stand on the line and fight monsters. Yeah. Tendo goes and sits behind his computer and gives them real time intel, regardless of the time of day. And that, now I meant, now I come to think about it, also ties into one of the other things that Beecham's mentioned, which is everyone who goes through Ranger Academy trains to be a Jaeger pilot. 99% of people wash out. The other 99% automatically are granted a commission in the Ranger Corps that Jaeger pilots are absolutely unique. They are a tiny percentile of the human population. But simply by going through the process, simply by getting to the point where you are able to try out for this, means that you're pretty much the best of the best yourself. That, And even the flip side to that is equality, is the idea that, you know, we are, Alex's point from earlier on, people go into battle holding hands. If you sign up to be a ranger, you're going to be a ranger. Because you've shown up and you volunteered to die. Exactly. They make a point at the beginning that uh, actually no, they make the point. Um, yeah, uh, Riley makes the point that we became rock stars, and this is actually venerating uh, and and giving celebrity to uh, people who are actually doing something really significant, rather than just being super hot in a movie or being super hot on stage yeah. while singing a song, and and veneration, but. There's a certain distaste for the idea of heroes throughout, which focuses more on the idea of heroism being universal and that everybody pulling together is in itself a mass heroic act. And that ultimately the guys holding hands and going into battle are just the tip of the spear, but that it requires the full thrust of humanity to get it through. It's even coded into how the Jaegers deploy. The yeah. fact that you have you have those fleets of kind of ten or fifteen Chinooks, all of whom are being flown by gu- but flown by rangers, all of whom are being flown by pilots. Yeah. That you've got the couple of hundred tech support back in the Shatterdome, and again, Stacker's line about we're the resistance. That the line has dwindled to the point where it is these maybe five hundred people in one fortress. That's the only thing that's left, and they're still showing up. That holding hand theme turns up. Uh, holding hands theme turns up in the intro sequence, doesn't it? There's a, the, the shot where they talk about. Then we realised it wasn't going to stop. Isn't there a line of people stood yes. on the cliff yeah, holding hands? Yeah, no, I think it's they're on a boat. Ah, right. It's after the Carvo attack because Riley's narration is this, then this, then they hit Carvo, and there's a shot of, as you say, a line of people silhouetted against the sunset on a boat. I, I think they're meant to be refugees from the city. Yeah. When I was a kid, whenever I'd feel small or lonely, I'd look up at the stars. Wondered if there was life up there. Turns out I was looking in the wrong direction. When alien life entered our world, it was from deep beneath the Pacific Ocean. A fissure between two tectonic plates. A portal between dimensions. The breach. I was 15 when the first kaiju made land in San Francisco. By the time tanks, jets, and missiles took it down, six days and 35 miles later, three cities were destroyed. Tens of thousands of lives were lost. 
mourned our dead, memorialized the attack, and moved on. And then, only six months later, the second attack hit Manila. Factor of the kaiju blood creates a toxic phenomenon named kaiju blue. And then the third one hit Cabo. And then the fourth. And then we learned this was not going to stop. This was just the beginning. We needed a new weapon. The world came together, pooling its resources and throwing aside old rivalries for the sake of the greater good. To fight monsters, we created monsters of our own. The Jaeger program was born. There were setbacks at first. The neural load to interface with the Jaeger proved too much for a single pilot. A two-pilot system was implemented. Left hemisphere, right hemisphere, pilot control. We started winning. Jaegers stopping kaijus everywhere. But the Jaegers were only as good as their pilots. So Jaeger pilots turned into rock stars. Danger turned into propaganda. Kaijus into toys. We got really good at it. Winning. Then, then it all changed. I'm going to give a shout out here to Mary Parent, who uh, was one of the exec producers on the film. Uh, not only did she get this uh, pushed through, and it seems like a, a really effortless thing. From what Del Toro talks about, he said it was the most um, rewarding, splendid visual uh, experience of his life. And it just seems like everything seemed to work and, and uh, work together. Um, Mary Parent also pushed Serenity through. She was the producer who believed in Joss Whedon, and she said, no, 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 we gotta make this, and we gotta make this a film at Universal. And she's, like, the best producer ever! Yes. You don't get much better than that, basically. It's so rare that I find myself praising producers, because I think, and sometimes unfairly, we kind of level a lot of the problems with, uh, with the film industry at their feet but there are people out there in powerful positions fighting the good fight for you know great creative and original work who use their powers for good yeah <laughs> <laughs> let's round up Marco as well because we've sort of gone on about her in a roundabout way and I suppose similarly we can incorporate Raleigh into this one as well but um, Sharon you were protesting at the idea that um, f- feminist writers have said that she's a weak character. Uh, some. Or, you know, some feminists, feminist sorry. Critics, yeah. Some feminist critics have said that she's a weak writer. In fact, some, you know, plenty of other critics who weren't being feminists. Well, this this was something that occurred to me, actually, when we were re-watching it last night. Um, it would fail the Bechtel test royally. Now, as we've obviously discussed before, the Bechtel test is not necessarily indicative of yeah. um, something treating female characters particularly well. But in this case, it, it's completely out the window. It was something that was brought up in... In storming the ivory tower that people were clinging on to this idea that uh, marco couldn't be or wasn't uh, a strong character because she didn't have many lines of dialogue and those lines that she did have were pretty simplistic or that she was um, simply shy and recessive and those are not good qualities of a character yeah 
to which I would say, I think they were probably watching it with their eyes shut. <laughs> Certainly their third eyes shut. Mm. When did, when, I'm sorry, when did being shy and introverted become bad qualities for any character to have? Harry Potter. One of the most beloved characters of yeah. all time. <laughs> shy just, and introverted. I, I don't know that I'd call Harry shy and introverted, but no, I, I no, I think he that, is. Especially for the first few years, he's very shy. Oh. Okay. Hermione is extroverted. Really? My God, you and me see those stories very differently. <laughs> no, but no, I, 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 I think I agree with Alex actually because Hermione barges into the uh, yeah. uh, carriage and says, "I'm Hermione Granger. Has anyone seen a toad for Neville?" that magic's not very good and she pushes herself in people's faces harry's trying to sort of lay low throughout the whole time there's yeah. different definitions of introvert sorry josh i can't take away the few times when you get to speak go no 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 um because you're too I, introverted I I, I I finished my point to be I'm honest so sorry. Um, it's okay it, um, i was thinking the other day because you, you were talking about what's that pony test there's other things that have... Uh, uh, Myers-Briggs. The Myers-Briggs test. I went through that thing, and and I worked out that I'm actually introverted. I might seem extroverted, but everything about me that seems more true is more on the introverted uh, side of things. I, I think... Go, go on, sorry. No, 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 you go. No, I think people make the mistake of thinking that introverted and extroverted means antisocial and social. That's not what they mean. It's where you draw your energy from. Introverted people draw their energy from within, whereas extroverted people draw their uh, energy from everyone around them. So you can absolutely be a loud, um, in-your-face introvert. Uh, sorry, I, I, did I just... <laughs> I love you, Alex. I did need to, yeah. Um, loud and in your face. I totally am. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's just about, um, it's about where you get your energy from. I've already said that. That's but, okay. um, introverted people just need to get away from people to recharge their batteries. Um, you can be in people's faces, you can be loud, but you just, you can't do that all the time. You need to get away, you need to have personal time. Whereas personal time for extroverted people is nightmarish. They, they don't like living inside their own heads. Um, and, Mark, Mark, Marco, you should know this one. She is named for Marco. (laughs) Marco, um, is, I, she is an introverted and may, she is introverted and maybe the stereotype, uh, slightly stereotypical view of, uh, the introvert, but she opens up, she opens up to the characters that she really knows well, and that's kind of the trait, uh, that a lot of introverts have, is that it's only strangers that they're really shy around. People they really know, people they're familiar with, they open up and they, and they express themselves. Uh, she, she's, you know, she's def. I've forgotten Idris Elba's uh, character name. Stacker Pentecost. Stacker. She's definitely much more open and much more opinionated around Stacker. In fact, every scene those two are together, she opens up. She is. Uh, she doesn't hold back her opinions on anything. It's only around uh, when she's around unfamiliar faces. Mm. Um, and and to, I really, I feel sometimes people want every. 
every female character to be a Mary Sue to make up for the lack of great female characters there have been in fiction. We don't need, you know, perfect female characters in films. We need interesting female characters in films. That doesn't mean um, Xena Warrior Princess. It can be mean a number of different things. Um and um, I think Marco is a great example of a character who is really dynamic and interesting, a central part of the plot, but isn't perfect, has flaws, and so forth and so on. I I really don't understand that that perspective, um, the, the perspective Shan was uh, was not expressing, sorry, giving as an example of people thinking she's a weak character. I don't get that at all, to be honest. Me either. I mean, to me, this is the, the way I summed it up earlier is she is half of the heart of this film. Yeah. The, this, to me, when I was watching the film as a whole piece, it is not about Raleigh. It's about both of them. They yeah. are each half of the central protagonist. Yeah. If you take one of them away, the central protagonist is missing something. It's almost like, and again, this thing that I have of, of dividing uh, fictional environments up into sort of psychological components. They were to me the soul of the film and you could split them into the anima and the animus, but you needed them both together to make it work. Mm. There's almost a case for saying that's one of the reasons why it, it didn't, it got the, the negative reviews and relatively low box office it got because I, I think you're absolutely right, and I can't think of a single other film that's done that. I, I honestly wonder whether a lot of people just genuinely didn't get it. Yeah, to, to be fair, it, I, it did get a lot of positive press as well. I think the response I've seen has been more positive than negative than anything else. I just don't think uh, a lot of people got a chance to see this film or went in expecting something that it wasn't. There has been um, quite a bit circulating recently on Twitter, where I spend most of my life, um, about will have we reached a point now where audiences will spend money on a film with a female protagonist? And the example that people kept coming up with was Catching Fire, because it's, you know, made huge bank and obviously central female. Sorry, um, will we'll now I... Would like to point out that you know someone like Scorner Weaver's been a headline female star in films for years. Yes, but the argument that's being made is that um, if you want to, in fact, we had almost this exact same discussion before when we were talking about male and female characters in books. The theory is that when you're marketing, you target to the biggest group you can. That's how you bring in the most money. And while women will accept and identify with a male central character, men find it a lot harder to accept and identify with a female character. Okay. I personally think this is bollocks. Yeah, I was going to say... Marketer chump, and it makes me very, very cross when people start trotting it out, because I think marketing is the evil of all the world and should be burned in a fire. But anyway, that's beside the point. Can can, can we splicey splicey in... um, um, Bill Hicks. By the way, if anyone here is in advertising or marketing, kill yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Just a little thought. I'm just trying to plant seeds. 
<laughs> I could do that. There may be people who do marketing listening to this podcast. It, you don't it, want to encourage them to go and kill themselves. Well, the important thing, uh, I'm, I kind of need marketing right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say. Of all times I, now, I need marketing. I think. I think a major, I think a distinction that I, I need to make is that I don't think marketing is inherently evil. I think the way it's been used by big companies has become problematic. When it, when it, like when it, guns are not inherently evil. That's, that is a very good way of putting it. Yes, yes. money is not evil. Guns are not necessarily evil. It's the way they're used. Yes. It's yeah. a tool. Yeah. Pacific Rim got 72% on, uh, average aggregate on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, which seems, Actually, commensurate, I believe, with the with, with uh, how the public's reckoning of this kind of film. Um, what do the Transformers films get? Oh, terrible, terrible! Like, uh, hang on, let me just check, shall I think we? One of them's in the thirty range. That will be the the second, second one. Just yeah. abominable. That's high for the second one. First one, fifty-seven percent. Second one, twenty percent. Right, okay. That's and still too high. third one, 36%. Right. Yeah. Just, just to give you an idea, but I think 57% for that first one, in retrospect, now that we've had the other ones, probably would be uh, adjusted because we've had enough Optimus Prime. But, uh, yeah, it, it cost 190 million, and very specifically, Del Toro and company gave mm-hmm. legendary pictures back their change. I think this, the budget was originally 200 million or something along those lines, and they said, hey, here's 10 million back. And that was after he requested an extra couple of days for reshoots, just to get the end of the movie just right, uh, because there needed to be the right amount of character beats in there. And, um, They're going to invite him back. It made 407 million, which is not bad at all. It's enough to make sure that uh, he can be choosy about his next uh, piece and not have to do another Blade 2, which, by the way, Sharon and I watched fairly recently. And not, I'm not, so sorry. Not his best. <laughs> it's not his best, but it's still the best Blade movie. I have a soft spot for the first one. I can allow the first one. I can, I can, I can be with you on the, the first, third, one. The third one. The I think everyone terrible. agrees the third one's bloody awful. But yeah, the, the, the second, the first and second, they, they both have merits to them, but they're both very silly. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it's interesting how, uh, um, when he's really trying, what a complete difference it makes. Remember, it's about compatibility. It's a dialogue, not a fight. But I'm not gonna dial down my moves. Okay. Then neither will I. One zero. <laughs> one one. Enough. I've seen what I need to see. Me too. She's my co-pilot. Uh, Rinko Kikuchi turns in, uh, for me, a magnificent, understated performance. And uh, the the duel scene where she's uh, fighting with um, Raleigh. Deliberately shot like a sex scene. Incredibly intimate. It's almost like everyone else in the room melts away. And it's not about violence. It's also not just a dance either. Yeah. There is a certain, it would have been so easy to make that like, um, the, the fight in The Mask of Zorro where he's, uh, fighting with, uh, Catherine Zeta Jones. That's a dance. Very obviously. And, uh, you know, very much kind of a tango and, and it's, it's got a lot of, uh, uh, a fire behind it. But this, 
very specifically. It, it straddles the line between beating the crap out of each other and humping the crap out of each other, but <laughs> not in a lascivious way and not in that kind of leery Michael Bay way, but in, 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 in more pointing towards intimacy. Uh, the, the intimacy of being that close and being that much in tune with one another. The whole point is to see if they can get into the same rhythm. And effectively, what Michael Bay has done, I've said this before, um, Michael Bay is a, is a filmmaker with a pornographic sensibility. I mean, everything about the way the Michael Bay film looks, he's like, whoa, hey, whoa, look, car, whoa, look at that car, whoa, that robot, whoa, that engine, whoa, hey, hey. Whoa, that Megan Fox, eh? Hey, whoa! Is and he from Croydon? Pardon? Is he from Croydon? Everyone who says that is, is from Croydon, fine. So that's, that is essentially his filmmaking sensibility, and that's, that, that's how he's done it. So what they've done is they've said, okay, so let's, we'll make the Transformers movie entirely like that, with the whole look of the film, the whole sound of everything about it, we'll just be, whoa, hey, whoa, whoa, robots, whoa, car, whoa. Now, to some extent, I, you know, I can kind of tolerate 90 minutes of people going, what about robots hitting each other? What bothers me, and it bothered me in the first Transformers movie, and it bothers me even more, and this may just be to do with, you know, rampant political correctness on my part. I don't know whether I missed a meeting or at exactly what point it became completely acceptable to make a movie that's essentially aimed at young kids that has such a leery quality to it in terms of its uh, the way that it looks at the female character I mean I'd say female characters I mean I think even using the word characters is overstating the way they're used when we were introduced to, to Megan Fox as Simon quite rightly says she is you know draped over a motorcycle the bit that you miss is then that the, the rest of the movie has exactly the same aesthetic there is one moment in which uh, Shia LaBeouf sleepy la beef snoozy la pork goes to um, goes to, to, to college where his college incidentally appears to be entirely peopled by the population of Maxim magazine and uh, immediately he is pursued by a young woman in a short skirt, who the ca- whose short skirt the camera follows in a paparazzi-like fashion. And Michael Bay actually makes a plot point of doing this. I, I don't want to support, spoil the surprise if anybody actually wants to go and see this. But it's almost like there is a science fiction plot point for the leery way in which the camera follows this, you know, this, this, well, I say, you know, she's meant to be a college student, but obviously she's actually a 35-year-old pole dancer, probably. <laughs> And so what bothers She's me... not 35. Whatever, not Megan Fox. But what, so what bothers me is that you can no longer just make a stupid action movie with robots hitting each other, which I have no problem with at all. That's absolutely fine. What you do is you crank it up to, to get as far as you can get within the certificate that kind of just that, that will give you the biggest possible audience. And somehow it has become acceptable for that kind of movie to have the most leery, the most absolutely Neanderthal, the most... I think reprehensible and rather sad attitude to the way that it looks at those characters. And you see this, I mean, Michael Bay has produced a number of uh, horror movie remakes in which this very same quality is evident. So I want to be absolutely clear. Yes, the film is mind-bendingly terrible. It is incredibly long and incredibly loud and incredibly boring and nothing happens very loudly about a hundred times. I was going to say very specifically, if that is a sex scene, and I have to admit that hadn't occurred to me before. Thank you. It will now when I watch it next time. Um, it but it's not. <laughs> it's no, no, it didn't. But the little it, glances and smiles, and better watch out. Maybe I just wasn't in that frame of mind. It's more like foreplay, actually. But <laughs> well, what what I think is particular about it is that it's not 
um, like a flirtation scene. It's not, this is not new lovers coming together for the first time. If anything, this is a couple that know each other. Like you said, it's intimate. They, they know each other's moves already almost. Mm. It's about testing each other's boundaries and seeing how well they can mirror each other. The exactly. flow between them becomes so obvious in that scene. It's, it's already been demonstrated actually. There's, there's a point where, um, uh, Raleigh is talking to Mako very, not aggressively, but very enthusiastically. And he walks towards her and she mirrors him and backs away. And then she goes up the stairs so that she is the same height as him. Mm-hmm. And then she stops and holds her ground. Wow. I, I always love uh, watching uh, sparring matches in movies like this because the energy is completely different uh, to a regular fight sequence. It's because neither neither person involved in the fight is trying to win. Um, I it, This fight sequence immediately reminded me of the fight in The Matrix between Morpheus and Neo yeah. in that the characters are trying to draw something out of each other. Um, it's not about winning or losing. It's about educating and trying to create a relationship between these two people and doing it through a very physical way. But it's still, it's so like I, fight sequences are difficult because, um, the, the motivations of the characters tend to be, uh, not simple, but always, they're always the same. It's like, I must win to save the world and so forth and so on. So just having that slight change of motivations can make something that would normally be boring really exciting and dynamic and, and interesting. And also really important for these characters in a way that a, a regular fight sequence isn't. The second thing is the idea of what, you know, whether or not you're interested in the characters. And actually, despite the fact that it is essentially a movie with really big robots hitting really really big monsters often at sea there is at the heart of it characters that you care about what he's managed to do is in the same way to some extent as real steel which is comparable only in this way both real steel and this demonstrate just how much michael bay dropped the ball with transformers this is essentially a demonstration of how you would go about making that movie in a way that correctly dealt with the target audience saying you can make movies about great big fighting robots that are not just head-bangingly boring and don't have any characters that we care about you can make those movies in which it's not a film that's interested in Megan Fox bending over a motorbike, but actually has got a central female character that's, you know, out fighting with all the rest of them. You can make that movie in a way which has a degree of wit to it, whilst also remembering that the suspenseful sequences have to have an element of danger. And most importantly, you can make that movie in a way that looks like you love these creations rather than in a way that makes you look like you're ma- like somebody running their finger down a bank balance and figuring out exactly how much money you could squeeze out of the franchise. It is undoubtedly true that if you put Transformers and Real Steel and Pacific Rim together, see, generically, there, you know, there are connections, great, big, huge mechanical things having fights. But on the one side of it, you've got the horrible, cynical, you know awful sensibility of michael bay and at the other hand you have the in in my mind the much more human much more loving much more enthusiastic sensibility of guillermo del toro when you consider that essentially the movie is a great big dumb popcorn movie with you know crashing and fighting and smashing and spectacle 
what's impressive is that you do come out with thinking, I like those characters. I could follow all the back. I knew where everyone was at every point. I understood where the arcs of, of the story were going to. And I never, I, I never got bored. Also for a sports film, it doesn't have a montage. I mean, it yeah. has one at the beginning to so, show what happened, but the, there is a definite point in this film. Well, for a start, if it was a, the average sports film, then they would have lost that fight against Leatherback. Yeah. That uh, uh, Leatherback or and Otachi would actually have won that particular one, and it would have been, oh, my God, everything's lost, but there's one final push, but they win. And that would also be the natural point for them to, you know, then... don't have time for a montage no. though if they'd had a montage in this everybody would have been like kaiju coming stop go fight you're already pros one of the things i love about the duel scene she wins in yeah. so many other specifically male dominated testosterone films if there's a girl who's far is like ah, ha, ha, the filly has some spunk in her you know she won't actually win but she'll go at the end and uh, it'll be obvious that she oh, would have won, but then she maybe she let him win because she wanted to be dominated. But um, no, thanks to uh, uh, Black Widow in Iron Man Two and, and various other you know strong female characters uh, recurring in uh, fantasy and sci-fi in the past few years, um, we get to see uh, women who are actually tougher than men, which is fantastic. That was another character who got brought up in this uh, article that I read about would men pay to go and see a film with a female lead I think it was prompted by um, the announcement of uh, the Wonder Woman casting actually um, and the, the question was put hmm let me think would men pay to go and see Scarlett Johansson in a black leather cat suit kicking ass royally I think yes. they might sorry yes. black leather cat suit <laughs> sorry Sorry. I don't well, know. A shield that you put in the article, yeah. but whatever, you know, appropriate clothing she has. Shades have. of Electra are coming in here, but I think the uh, the answer really is yes, as long as it wasn't shit. Yeah. Absolutely. Then again, I'm... I think that the theory is crap. Uh, sorry, Neil, you'd still go to see it even if it was shit. I was about to point out I have watched Catwoman. God, I did it to see how bad it was. Yeah, that, that's all right though, because that's that's for science and nature. Uh, I, at least you mentioned the Wonder Woman casting, and I haven't started complaining. So well done. Indeed. Also, can you guess the element of the costuming that I really, really liked? The or the I absence know? of a certain element. Oh, the high heels? <laughs> Not a fucking heel in sight. Thank you. There is, there's a you do realise that under certain different hands and different handling, uh, then Marco, if at all she was in it, would have driven a female Jaeger with enormous stiletto heels. That would, would probably have been, have been pink. And it would have had boobs. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Robot boobs. Oh, sorry, mech boobs. Mecha boobs. She, she does have a very slightly molded um, chest plate on her armour, but it, it seems as though it is actually molded just to give her a little bit of, of movement accommodation. Or to and deliberately evoke Shepard. Well, yeah, indeed. <laughs> but it, it doesn't specifically have that line of pressure in the middle of the breastplate, which is in so many female armours and is absolutely deadly and would kill you as soon as you took any weight on it. Um, but yes, she turns up in military gear and boots and that is pretty much consistent throughout everybody has shoes that work but she's also very much a, uh, playing a character of her culture uh, Rinko Kikuchi she she has that 
she repeatedly points out that it's to do with respect and she uh well that it's not i don't think you really go into any i don't think he's actually named but pentecost is her sensei as well as her symbolic adopted father figure there is a lot of who she would represent in japanese culture in the character i think in essence though it, the elements of femininity that she presents are the ones that she has chosen yeah. And you can see that same thing coming out actually in um, uh, Kaidanovsky. She is the closest any character in this gets to being overtly femme. She has this platinum blonde hair, very red lipstick. There's there's moments where she she does behave in quite a um, a sultry, seductive way. Only visually, only in a, her facial characteristics and a, a couple of actions that she throws here and there, but those are the elements that she is choosing to put forward there's um, a, a gif which is, I think is in that Storming the Ivory Tower article which perfectly illustrates that mm. that's and exactly what I was thinking of the, the one with Raleigh coming into the mess hall yeah yeah, and, and she very specifically watches him and puts a hand round her husband and it's, it, it's a very unusual m- movement because it's proprietorial and it, it's also no, he's mine <laughs> There's, it's not made massively um, a big deal of either, but there is always uh, a dominant member of the co-piloting team. Uh, originally, it was Yancey uh, with um, him and Raleigh, and then Raleigh becomes the dominant one with Marco. Uh, with Chuck and Herc, Herc is technically the dominant pilot, although Chuck dominates their relationship. Herc can barely get a word in edgeways when uh, when they're together in, in public. Um, and uh, of the uh, Kardinovskis, uh, the the female, most definitely the dominant one. The male, quieter, uh, more introverted. I think her name's Sasha. Sasha, yeah. There's a very significant moment, uh, which I hadn't noticed until uh, recently. During the first uh, battle, Riley's arm gets torn off. Uh, sorry, Riley's left arm uh, is of uh, Gypsy Danger. And that's the one that was him. So effectively, he's useless at that stage. And he's then trying to use the, the right arm, previously um, being operated, uh, or at least prompted by Yancey. Uh, at the end, Gypsy has her right arm torn off. And that was Riley again. And Marco, with the sword, is controlling the left arm. So in both cases, whether he's recessive or dominant, the arm gets torn off. And... Uh, in the first instance, he just about manages to push through, despite the fact that he goes through in, in, insane amounts of torment. But in the second case, he works in tandem with Marco to push through and then saves her, full circling what he was not able to do the first time. And in the middle, you have the uh, fight in Hong Kong, wherein it's Marco's final pulling out of the sword that allows her to actually take control of the final uh, blow and win the fight. I think that element of losing effectively both his arms at different points is reinforcing this idea of of working together and unity and you have to learn to trust and rely on other people to support you because there's there's this big thing about how other than Stacker, Raleigh is the only person who's ever successfully managed to pilot a, a Jaeger solo. 
But ultimately, he can't be allowed to think that that is okay. He can't be allowed to think that that makes him special and unique and that he could do this all by himself. So by taking those arms away, it's effectively almost like fate saying to him, you have to now lean on the person next to you. You have no other choice. Before we go to the final push, I do want to highlight uh, Geisler and Gottlieb, these two um, cranky, jabbering uh, and diametrically opposed uh, doctors. Um, Geisler wants to be a rock star, even though the fact that he is a, t- a total uh, fanboy geek. Uh, th- I love the little thing where he's like, wow, I'm in condition, talking about the kaiju fingernail. Uh, there's a, a point where he uh, um, very proudly says, "Don't call me a doctor." In kind of you know, that's I, I, I want to be cooler than that. And uh, he's saying he wants to see a kaiju close up. That's what he wants the most. And as Godleib calls him a kaiju groupie. But then later on, when he's in Hong Kong, he's running away, panicking, desperate to get away from a kaiju, and says, "Get out of my way! I'm a doctor." So it's like a total turnabout on that again. Del Toro pointed this one out, and I hadn't, it hadn't really occurred to me. It's really touching the way Gottlieb kind of says, well, we're going to do this together. Do we?" Ha-? He says, do we have a choice? But really, it's radiating forth from him that he knows this is what he's here to do. This is what they're there to do. Whether it's fate or not, it's something that they are coming together to actually achieve. And then there's that weird, awkward little, like handshake thing and Gottlieb can't quite get his hand in there and it's just I, every time I see that I just I, I both laugh and smile from the very middle of myself <laughs> they are also a brilliant example of the idea of leaning on each other to uh, compensate for th- things that you don't have yeah. um, if you if you look at their I, I won't go so far as to call them disabilities because they're pretty minor, really. But if you look at their physical um, disadvantages, Gottlieb is insight. He's the one who, who sees what's coming in the numbers. But he can't act. He can't walk. He has a stick. He has to lean on that for support. Newton is very much a man of action. He always wants to be doing things but he can't see when he loses his glasses he's totally vulnerable totally unable to do anything but put them together and you get those two uh, flaws if you like compensated for by the other also mentally speaking geisler is uh, is he a biologist He's yeah, definitely into the like organic that. side of things, yes, uh, and yeah. uh, he's most clearly and derided for it by Gottlieb at the yeah, beginning. <laughs> but he's most clearly uh, got some very highly advanced level of ADD, so he can't focus. Gottlieb can only focus, and uh, he, he describes that mathematics is the closest we've got to the language of God, and he's very precise about everything. But he doesn't have that energy to push him through in the way that Geisler does, and the combination of these guys and the uh, Jaegers and the support team and the pilots all pulling together at once shows that everyone has a purpose not one person is of no use in this grand effort and it's not about the military it's about the unity it's almost the opposite of the standard uh, monster movie trope that it's about the other and it's about this the uh, hero versus the other 
Exactly. To the save other us. is this is what you fear. This is what you and and some you know some monster movies go about it by saying you know you you may fear this and you may not recognize it, but look and you will see elements of yourself in it. This is going totally other way the other way yeah. and saying not only should you not fear the other, you need to recognize that you have gaps in what you can do, and the other fills those gaps in. In the Man of Steel extras, Amy Adams was uh, was one of the many talking heads in this sort of the making of uh, thing, and she said, hey, "It's just it's the kind of movie that makes you think: is could someone come from the stars to save us from ourselves?" And I thought, "Wow, we're already so far beyond that." Having just watched Pacific Rim, that's why the Avengers is a brilliant development in the hero uh, genre because. It is about pulling together. It is uh, and settling your differences to, uh, to fight towards common good, and not just the one costumed hero being the one guy who can save the city from the one crazy guy with a bomb. Which exactly. I'm kind of getting tired of. <laughs> exactly. I mean, just with the Avengers, the most important scene in there is that that sequence where they are all taken out and they all get back up. Yeah. And that's the hinge around which the entire back hour of that movie, I would argue turns that none of these people are perfect they're all mortal and they're all just as in pacific rim they're all showing up anyway there's an alarming similarity by the way in the iron man poking a uh, nuclear warhead through the uh uh the rift towards the um the the fleet and blowing it up and the, you know i would imagine behind the uh, uh cockpit of that giant Jaturi warship, there was a similar alien who went just before the nuclear warhead went off. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But I mean, if, if we, if you look, if, if you start to look closely at similarity of motif there, then we need to start listing all the transparent prison cages that villains have been put in in big budget movies across the last two years, and we really will be here all night. We will, yes. That's been quite a lot. They're all trying to sort of get in on the Hannibal Lecter vibe. And it's a good vibe. I like it because oh, it allows yeah. more characterization rather than just "yeah, I will destroy <laughs> your city." But uh, but yeah, you're right. That has been overdone. Well, there was also uh, the the hero who dies in or, or dies for us or almost dies for us in cruciform. Uh, it, it it almost happens. I think as Iron Man falls back through, he sort of like sort of flops his arms on either side. Superman's done it in his last two cinematic outings, and even Gypsy does it here. But because she's missing an arm, it's not so overt. Good point. Yeah, which leads us to the final push, and we can now talk about Stack of Pentecost, played by a chap named Idris Elba, who I think, Josh, you might have mentioned, or, or Neil, did you mention that you quite like this guy? <laughs> I have I have seen many movies with Idris Elba in. He is always the best thing. Yeah. Ghost Rider, Prometheus, Idris Elba is awesome. Who does he play in Ghost Rider? Is it Spirit of Vengeance he's in? It's Spirit of Vengeance. He plays a French monk who's always drinking wine, and he is <laughs> flipping hilarious. He is the best part of that film. He's the, he's the only good part definitely. of the film. Yes. And don't forget, he's also in Thor. Yeah, so uh, Stack of Pentecost is, is just defined in the movie as a fixed point, or at least a man struggling to try his best to be the fixed point. Uh, you know, he's this aged warrior, the old samurai, uh, again, defined by the fact that he has already bled for his country and continues to bled. Not sorry. He has already bled for the world because that's what happens when aliens come through the rift. The world becomes your country and continues to actually physically bleed before us to show that he is doing what he can with his final hours. And if that means effectively hiding 
all of his misgivings and just remaining strong for everybody else. Marshall, can we just talk about this for one second? You rescued her. You raised her. You're not protecting her now. You are holding her back. One, don't you ever touch me again. Two, don't you ever touch me again. Now, you have no idea who the hell I am or where I've come from, and I'm not about to tell you my whole life story. All I need to be to you and everybody on this dome is a fixed point. The last man standing. I do not need your sympathy or your admiration. All I need is your compliance and your fighting skills. And if I can't get that, then you can go back to the wall that I found you crawling on. Do I make myself clear? Yes, sir. Good. The thing which fascinates me about well, there's like nine things that fascinate me about Stacker, including wardrobe. Um, there's his immaculate suit for a start. The thing which really fascinates me about him is actually the exact opposite to that. That the final scene and you know I, the 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 scene which leads up to the canceling the apocalypse monologue. He's completely serene. He's at peace. My favorite line in that entire movie is when you see him suited up for the first time and Chuck comes up to him and, and does the kind of, oh, I'm going to attempt to male dominance you because that's all I know how to do thing. And he just very calmly and politely shuts him down and everyone kind of gathers around him. He smiles and pats the stomach of the suit and goes, I don't remember it being this tight. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful, gentle little character beat that you have this guy going, yeah, I know. This will be my last time out. Getting too old for it anyway. And it's time. And he's... It's it's an incredibly. I mean, it, it the the one thing I disagree with on the honest trailers version of Pacific Rim, although it is very funny to be fair, is intercutting the canceling the apocalypse monologue with the soldiers saluting from the end of Independence Day, because you can't get further away from how that scene is shot on Independence Day yeah. than how that monologue is done here, because he's so calm, and it's Alex, you you nailed it. You said you know, he's the old samurai. He is. This is a man who's walked with death his entire life, and now he's going to meet him. There's no fear, there's no regret, there's just, I'm in the right place at the right time. His delivery. It could just be the British accent. I think it comes down to conviction. When he says everything, you believe in him. You believe that... It's the same, it's why I drew the Optimus Prime parallel. Peter Cullen has such a grave and serious manner with how he handles otherwise quite cheesy dialogue he sells the character the situation and the entire world to you single-handedly if stacker pentecost had been played by who's terrible (laughs) let me get off my long list um (laughs) who's usually casting these roles um Uh, oh the guy bruce willis (laughs) (laughs) oh god I was actually going to say the, the, the evil army guy from Avatar. 
Oh, Stephen Lang. Oh, God, no. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, he'd have been awful as well. But this is the sort of thing that Bruce Willis would play because it's like an old gem Willis, an old soldier, and he, and he gets to sort of die in that same sort of Armageddon. Do you remember when at Cannes, people were laughing during that scene at the end of Armageddon, and Bruce got up and angrily shouted at the audience, I'm glad you find the end of the world so funny! And I like it's not the end of the world, Bruce. And I, I, I get a bit misty-eyed at that scene. And it's actually not dissimilar scenario. Because uh, in the same way that he's doing this for Grace in Armageddon, he's doing this for Marco, and by extension, the whole world. Basically, they're, they're both dying for the world, but their daughter is in their thoughts and is their prime person that they can say, this is for you. They can go because they know that their daughters are going to be okay. You made this parallel as well. Originally, uh, he's disapproving of uh, Raleigh to a degree, um, especially when uh, the, the the shit hits the fan regarding the flashback, um, in the same way that Harry is uh, disapproving of AJ. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, no, you know what? You chose right. Interesting. This is a remake of Armageddon without the asteroid. <laughs> There's... Uh, the, the, there's a very subtle differentiation between the two as well. By the way... Uh, the I, Russians I, are handled better in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, need a generic foreigner? Dial 1-800-PETA-STORM. Um, <laughs> Have you ever heard of Evil Knievel? No, I never saw Star Wars. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> the interesting thing about how Stacker goes out, though, is he doesn't go out knowing Mako's safe. He know, He goes out knowing he's given Mako the opportunity to do the job. True. And as far as he's concerned, she's going to dive in there and explode seconds afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. But specifically, like I said, it's not that he knows she's going to be safe. It's that he knows she's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that if she does die taking these guys out, she has given her life for the absolute best of reasons. And that that will bring her peace. An awful lot of this film is about the good death. An awful lot of this one was about choosing the, the moment where you go. It reminds me of nothing more a lot of the time than the, the single line in the 30 Days of Night movie adaptation, which really jumped out at me. It's about three quarters of the way through, and it's, it's the big bear-looking dude who is um, the Elvis impersonator in Sons of Anarchy. And uh, the, the vampires have taken over the town, but half the cast are already dead, and they work out that they can get to another building and survive mm. if someone distracts them. And he lays out this huge plan, so, and it, it will obviously get him killed. One of the others starts objecting to it, and he just turns to her and very gently says, No, it's my turn. Mm-hmm. And so much of Pacific Rim is about that, is about the, there will come a moment where you are, the, the way you can help the most is by dying so someone else doesn't. And victory in this film is a movable feast. It's, getting the opportunity to drive a Jaeger. It's getting back into the Jaeger program. It's proving that your hypothesis is right, which both Newt and... I still can't remember his name. Owen from Torchwood. Gottlieb. Um, <laughs> Gottlieb both get. It's not saving the world, but knowing that you've given someone who you love a chance to do that. Yeah. I think far too often in uh, Hollywood films, particularly those which are made with children in mind... Um, there's this idea that to win, you have to save everybody. And the idea of a victory is that everybody comes out of it alive. And it completely blocks off the concept of death being a natural thing. Everybody ends. And that's something that, that sometimes is a part of the victory. 
absolutely. And that that puts me in mind of a fantastic um, essay I, I saw about about the, the Doctor Who fifty a little while ago, which nailed in a way I've never seen before why regeneration is such a vital aspect of the show. It's how you teach children about death. Yeah. And you're up, Sharon. You're absolutely right. The idea that you know victory is clean and easy is is something which, if you're tremendously lucky, will last into your early twenties. And if you're not, you'll hopefully be disavowed of sometime around twelve. And to have fiction, which is designed not so much as a coping mechanism, but as a rope ladder, where you you, know, you can go, yeah, very bad things will happen. You'll be fine. Look, here's a fictional mirror of this. You'll find resonance here, and it'll help. Is, is so important and so little of it does that I think we're done <laughs> I can't yeah. follow that <laughs> thank you so much all of you guys for coming on the show you have enriched this piece thank you this has been wonderful this is um yeah this is exactly what I uh, always am um, proudest of for Gonzo a group effort one where everyone comes on does their bit and it just it comes off just so much better than uh, than, than just the sort of hero worship side of things And then at the end of the film, um, do you guys know who's actually doing the, the singing for this uh, this final piece? Nope. It's not Enya, is it? No, no, no. It's, it's Blake Perlman. Really? Yep. Seriously? Ron Perlman's daughter. That's fantastic. And the RZA. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, their, their combination of uh, male and female voices sort of uh, uh, forms the unity of uh, the narrative thrust of the film. And yeah, it ends on this uh, very unusual scenario where um, the the man doesn't kiss the woman. They just put their foreheads together and smile and are just really happy to be together and alive. And I really thought at least one of them was going to die. And for that, that would be the... Or maybe both of them. And that would be the, the great sacrifice for the world. And then they'd get heroes' funerals and, and it'd be like, look at what these people gave their lives. Uh, but this finale goes against the whole and this was again from Storm in the Ivory Tower the, uh, was it Dark Bad Attitude was it? Uh... it was called <laughs> Dark Bad Something <laughs> Grim Darkness I've not exactly been shy about my disaffection towards the modern grim darkness of media as a choice though I can at least understand and accept it what bothers me more is the critical attitudes that reads a film like The Dark Knight Rises as nuanced or complex due to its moral ambiguity rather than, you know, a film that contradicts itself on literally every conceivable thematic level to the point where the film is a giant grimdark mess of growling and posturing, sound and fury, saying nothing. The flip side of that, of course, is that a film like Pacific Rim is treated as somehow naive or insignificant because it dares to have not just a unified message, but quite a positive, affirmative message, spoken not in the language of Lifetime movies or this year's crop of Oscar bait, but in the language of metal, the language of force and bombast and people in giant fucking robots punching Godzilla in the face. We've reached a point, and really let this one sink in because it gets more flooring the more you think about it, where it's more radical and unacceptable to say humans can accomplish amazing things when we set aside our differences and disagreements and work together to make the world a better place, than to say something sour and bitter and cynical 
Cynicism used to be a radical thing. Now it's as mainstream as Green Day. Listen up. Today. Today. At the edge of our hope. At the end of our time. We have chosen not only to believe in ourselves, but in each other. Today there's not a man nor woman in here that shall stand alone. Not today. Today we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today we are canceling the apocalypse.
Right, anything else from anyone else? And has anyone got anything they would like to plug? I'll take a plug, if I may. Go for it. I'm the co-host of EscapePod at EscapePod.org, and I host Pseudopod at Pseudopod.org, which are science fiction and horror short fiction podcasts, respectively, every week. There will be um, an introduction, either by me or someone else, uh, a short story, about 25 to 45 minutes long, and an outro. Uh, we have somewhere in the region of a thousand episodes banked up between those two shows and Podcastle that also does fantasy. We have some of the best writers in genre fiction history in those thousand episodes, and they are all free. So if you're interested, do please pop along to escapepod.org, pseudopod.org, and or podcastle.org and go listen to some stuff. Um, A game that I know Alex is a huge fan of is the subject of a upcoming Cane and Rinse, Mark of the Ninja. Oh! But we have managed to get Nels Anderson, lead designer of Mark of the Ninja, on the podcast. Awesome. So we uh, not only expressed our very positive views on the game, but got to pick his brain on all the uh, concepts and ideas that went into that uh, that game. So listen to that. It was a really interesting discussion. Anything else from anyone else? Sharon? Can I plug my blog? Oh, plug away, yeah. In the absence of having anything else to plug at the moment, um, I would like to mention that I started a blog. And uh, what is the name of your blog, Sharon? Uh, At the moment, it is called Geekwality, G-E-E-Q-U-A-L-I-T-Y, because I wanted somewhere that I could put ramblings that I wrote and the only thing I've got up on there so far is an article called uh, In Place of a Dark Lord which is about my idea of having Kate Blanchett as Enchantress in a future Avengers film Ooh, can I say I'm down for that idea likewise totally yeah. this is the last episode of Digital Gonzo for a while There are several reasons why I'm putting the show on hiatus, some of which I will go into on the forums if you'd like to know more. Most importantly, it boils down to the amount of time and effort I need to devote to my New Century book series. Gonzo dominates my entire week, and as such, juggling it with writing the cartographer's handbook has been exhausting. I had hoped I could keep both the show and the book running concurrently in 2014, with enough of a good reception and support from my listeners. Being a podcaster is great fun, but I do want to do more with my life and actually start paying the bills with the creative work I produce. I have an average of 1,600 weekly downloads per new show. 1,046 people downloaded the Making of the Cartographer's Handbook. As I write this, there have been 181 downloads on the audio drama over the last three weeks. Of these 181, only 20 paid anything for it. I'm not even halfway to breaking even on what I paid for a use of the music. Of the ideal 50 in each territory, I've received 12 Kindle reviews in the UK and 17 in the USA. Once again, to everyone who has helped me by promoting this book and paying for their copy as well as the people who have donated to Gonzo in general, thank you so very much. It's more appreciated than you know. Now, I've been writing this book for more than a third of my life, and its release and reception represents a major step forward for me. However, I failed to make that clear to enough of you, and this has been widely regarded as yet another side project, like Gonzo Adventures or Praxis Effect or the Batman audio dramas. 
I've been naive and idealistic in following the donation business model as well. As a result, I'm going to have to refocus the beginning of my 2014 on marketing the book and its audio in more conventional ways, whilst at the same time devoting myself to mapping out the ongoing book series and getting the first part of New Century Season 1 written and recorded. I want to bring as many of you guys as possible with me on this next step. It is a really exciting time for me creatively, and your feedback, support, and pimping of New Century all feeds and nourishes the series. Digital Gonzo probably won't be gone forever. This is my 370th podcast, and after all these years, I still love reviewing movies with my guests. I could be back in a week's time, a month, six months, a year, or five It really all depends on a number of real-world factors. My New Year's resolution in 2013 was to get my first book published. Through an immense amount of hard work, I succeeded. My resolution for 2014 is to get the second book released, which now seems so much more achievable. And so with that, I wish a Happy New Year to all of you.